This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. to episode 21 of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase, where I invite bloggers, filmmakers and fellow film junkies to help me work for the 1000 film introduction to cult and obscure cinema, which is the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange list. As always, I'm your host, Elwood Jones, from the Depths DVD Hell, and tonight we have a very special show. As tonight, I've invited several bloggers who've been on previous shows to come and join me for the inaugural Under the Radar Movie Draft. That's right. So let's meet our competitors. Let's see who our critical gladiators are going to be entering our Thunderdome of movie debate yeah. and recommendation. First up tonight, we have the author and one half of the feminine critique, Christine. Oh, hi. Christine, whose book is available now on Amazon, Wake Up Maggie. Yep, that's me. Uh, uh, which I would recommend to everyone to go and buy, especially because I failed to recommend it last time you are on the show. So I do apologize for that. Well, thank you for picking up the slack now. <laughs> and we also have your partner in crime joining us again. Uh, we have Emily Intravena of the Deadly Doorhouse of Horror Nonsense. Hey, hey! It always seems to be the way, Emily, when we have you on the show that it's always a special. So I will at some point get you on a show that's not special, but... Well, I mean, I, I don't like to brag, but it's kind of... Where I go, it's special, right? <laughs> She's right? pretty special. Indeed. Yeah. It's a chicken and an egg thing. When their wonder twin powers combine and form the feminine critique. Huzzah. Cool. Do, do they merge together to form a giant robot? Mm, we're working on it. Cool. Yeah, I'm really bad at technology, so it tends yeah. to just look like a robot, but not actually do cool robot things. Well, you'll you'll get there eventually. We're working on it. Yeah. We believe in you. Wikipedia is helping a lot, guys. We're getting there. Yeah. And from the Large Ass Movie Blogs Association, we have their two representatives. First up, we have Nicholas Rehack of French Toast Sunday. Hey, man, I'm just happy to be here. 
And from the Nightmare Gallery, we have Daniel Lackey. Hello. Lackey, who you will remember the last episode, so it's kind of surreal to have the same guest twice, but, you know, we're rolling with it. It's all good. It's special. <laughs> it's so um, very special. <laughs> as I said, tonight we're going to be going around the table. Uh, each of you are going to take turns to be giving a film that you can that can be considered under the radar of the general movie goer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've opened it up. There's no limitations on genre. All we ask is that you are able to name six films, which, going off the emails I've had this week, making the six hasn't been a problem. It's narrowing it down to the six that's been seems to be the problem. Yeah, lists are hard in general. <laughs> I know. You always feel like you're hurting somebody's feelings when you don't put them on a list. I know. I don't know if any of you have put your list in any particular order. I know I haven't because as soon as you start putting things in order, it's the same as soon as you start saying things are essential. God, it gets dramatic then. Yeah. It just sends up a lot of hate mail in my inbox. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've actually already drafted the apology emails to some of the uh, filmmakers who appear later on the list. I don't want anybody (laughs) to feel left out. It's filmmakers are sensitive people. Filmmakers are people. Filmmakers are kind of like people, actually. Yeah, that's what they say. But well, but, um, they're really they're really body snatchers. But I my... don't want to let them know that we know that. Okay, the order that we're going to go in tonight. First of all, we're going to go Lackey, then Christine, then Nick, then Emily, and then myself. So to uh, kick things off, to fire the first shot in the uh, competition, uh, Lackey, what have you got as your first selection this evening? My first selection is a, a movie that I think tend to get, tends to get underlooked by under, in its director's filmography because it comes, uh, one of two films done between uh, his two real modern successes. And uh, the filmmaker is Danny Boyle, and it's the first of two movies he released between 28 Days Later and Slumdog Millionaire, and it's called Millions. Oh, yeah. And, oh, good um, pick. It's a, a very, it's a very sweet and poignant film looking at spirituality and religion and the idea um, of, of ineffable forces taking interest in people's lives and what it's like to look at the world from the point of view of a child. The premise being that a large bag filled of, with money uh, appears one day behind a, a house of a, of a recently moved family of three, uh, two boys and their father who recently lost their mother. And because... Britain is switching to the euro in several weeks. Uh, this money, which is in pounds sterling, will soon become obsolete, and uh, it's they've got a very little amount of time to figure out how to what to do with it, whether they're going to spend it or one kid wants to spend it on like electronics and cool sunglasses. The other kid wants to give it away to charity, and there's a kind of like a couple of other B plots in there, including the people who uh, appearance of the people who actually the money belongs to. And um, it's just a very sweet little movie, and it has a couple of really good performances, and I really like the use of effects and uh, special effects to kind of, like, bring this kid's imagination to life. He uh, builds, like, this box fort uh, in kind of like an empty field behind his house, and you can see the CGI plug together the little boxes, and uh, it's just a really neat, sweet little film. Cool. Good choice. And Millions is a weird film, obviously, for Bob, because prior to this, he had done... Uh, Shallow Grave, he'd done Train Spotting, and then he's obviously going off and making this sort of like sweet sort of family movie. So, and it's like a smart, it's like an adult family movie, like the kind they made more in the '80s, where the, it's not sugar coating a kids movie. It's a really a 
like there's really mature themes, but you could show it to children and have a good discussion yeah. about it. Right. I've yet to see it. I, I think it was, I was reading the cover and it was like, it got to the part about the child, one child wanted to give it away to a charity. And I just thought, oh, this is going to be like, pay it, pay it forward. Or <laughs> oh, God, no, no. I, I just wanted like the two kids and they just think, oh, cool, we got like a million dollars. Let's just piss it away. <laughs> That's the movie I want to see. But How about it? Cool. First choice. Right. Um, Christine, what's your first choice? Um, that makes it me. Um, hmm. I know you don't want to order these things, but then you're like, well, the order that I say them in is the order of them. So I'm trying not to get too in you're my head about it. You're judging you. But um, um, I don't know. A lot of circles could say this isn't really underappreciated or under the radar. But um, for me, this is one of my favorite horror movies ever made, period. And it should show up on everybody's list of horror movies ever. And it doesn't. Um, and that's 1977's The Sentinel. Mm. Uh, Emily likes this movie too. That Such a good cast! It's the cat. You just want to go through and read the cast list, but I mean, yeah. Christina Raines carries this movie on her back, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. She is infinitely likable and empathetic, and then Burgess Meredith is in it, and anything that he's in, sign me up. There's um, a cat birthday party! There's a cat birthday party. This, if you've never seen it, it's completely <laughs> bizarre and really creepy, and it um, is set in Brooklyn. And the, our protagonist is a fashion model. <laughs> um, and it's just really strange and interesting. And I don't know why more people don't mention it. It's just, for me, it's perfect. I, that's a bold thing to say. Um, and I always push it on people. And I think that's a good, a good tell of when you're super passionate about a film and people haven't seen it. You're just, you have to immediately see this movie. Here, take my DVD. Yeah. So, so that, is, that is my first pick. It, I personally haven't seen it yet. I've heard it been brought up a lot recently. It's, it's the same as like The Guest. It's one mm-hmm. of those films that's now suddenly come into vogue with a lot of bloggers. Bizarrely, a lot of the times it's been brought up is when they're talking about the use of real uh, disabled and handicapped actors in That in is Max. very true. Oh, I wonder if it came up also from American Horror Story of that being like referenced in those discussions of the past season where it was very carnival freak show. Oh, yeah. I, you know what? I don't even think of that aspect of it, to be honest. Yeah, it's such a small thing in the movie. And it's used and really it's, well. Yeah, it's interesting that people would focus on that. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy its um, the character interactions and how each room in the apartment building kind of has its own personality and its own bizarre inhabitants. I really like how it's set in this one place, but yet there's so much going on in it. And the sexiness of Chris Sarandon in that movie. Well, yeah, that goes yeah. without saying. Cool. Nick, have you seen uh, The Sentinel? I have not, uh, but I did write it down because I'm interested now. So, Yeah, we will be, of course, putting all the films that we uh, mentioned on tonight's show. Uh, and then we'll be forming a new list on the Letterboxd page. So any uh, films that you think sound interesting, you'll be able to check out on there. We'll also be putting up a poll so that our listeners can vote and yourselves can vote for yourselves. Or if you think someone else has got a better list, you can vote for them and uh, Get yourself some and the bragging rights of winning the first uh, under the radar draft. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Maybe I'll find something to put in a box and send you guys. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Right. Anyone got anything else to add to the Sentinel? I mean, obviously it's a film that's kind of in vogue, as I said before. I, I don't like you if you got anything I, I, to say. I actually own it. I'm not a huge fan of it. I bought it uh, well, probably about 10, 12 years ago on DVD. Back before Netflix and streaming became a thing, I had seen it uh, as a late night movie back when I was uh, in my teens, and I figured if I didn't buy it, 
uh, I would never have a chance to see it again. <laughs> it's it's a pretty good movie. I don't really feel particularly amazingly enthusiastic about it, but it does have quite a few. Uh, the design, the the way it uses the sets with the with the rooms and the the uh, the, the various architectures of the building. It's 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 got a very kind of Rosemary's Baby type vibe, the way it uses these big Gothic New York things, and it's got. If I recall, just beyond the um, the actors that have already been mentioned, Jeff Goldblum, Jerry Orbach, Beverly D'Angelo, and just yeah. a couple really, really nice, surreal um, scenes like the, the birthday party one. Black and white cat, black and white cake. Cool. <laughs> Sometimes you just need one scene to sell a film, and cat birthday, cat party, birthday party, I think, may be it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Nick, what have you uh, got for your selection? Uh, I'm going to kick things off with a film from Michael Mann, and that's Manhunter. A lot of people, when they think Hannibal Lecter, they think Anthony Hopkins, when really the first interpretation of Hannibal Lecter was Brian Cox. Um, And it's a movie that was actually I watched out of ignorance because I was always a huge Sansa the Lambs fan. I enjoyed Hannibal. I enjoyed Red Dragon. Um, But and I'm like, you know what? This movie's probably garbage. It's probably not as good as, you know, what these other films are. And I watched it. And part of me actually enjoys it more than what I enjoy in Silence of the Lambs. I like Brian Cox a little bit more as uh, as Hannibal Lecter. I enjoy Will Graham more than I do Clarice Starling. And and just the style of everything that very 80s simplistic yet complicated style and the way it was shot in the soundtrack. I really enjoy the soundtrack. Um, it's just, I don't know, the more I watch it, the more I like it, and lately it's been a film that I've been revisiting more than other films. Just, obviously, uh, it is a controversial point. What is everyone's sort of thoughts on Lecter? I mean, do we all, anyone have a particular favorite actor as Lecter? I personally love Brian Cox as Lecter, but... My my favorite is Mads Mikkelsen from Hannibal the Show. Me too. I haven't watched the show yet. (laughs) I, 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 I do enjoy mods, but there's just some scenes where I just, for me, the dialogue, like, I just can't hear what he's saying, and that kind of bothers me sometimes, but I'm sure that, you know, upon multiple viewings, getting through that, I'll get I'll get better at it, but I don't know, something about Brian Cox just does it for me. Brian he's Cox really just so good in everything. He's really schlubby in it, too. Like, he plays it completely different um, than anyone after him does, and, and I really enjoy that. Um, I recently saw Manhunter for the first time, and it really impressed me. I didn't have any expectations going in. But it's actually, from my money, closer to the source material, too. And I'm not wild about the books, but this one, it caught its essence, like what I actually enjoyed in the books a lot more. So I tend to enjoy Manhunter. as That's my adaptation. That's the one I go to. (laughs) I need to revisit it. I do. I think revisiting it will be good, too, because I think this upcoming season of Hannibal, they're going to introduce uh, Francis Dollarhide yep. into the yeah, series. So that should be it should be interesting, their take on it. Yeah, I just revisited Manhunter, actually. I think I published a review of it about a month ago in anticipation of the new season of Hannibal. And I hadn't seen it in quite a long time. And it is it is a very good film. It is an excellent film. And I I do like how... I, I do like in a way that it, it's kind of slipped under the radar and ha- has kind of a, a little bit existed in the shadow of the Silence of the Lambs and that continuity, not because it's a bad or a lesser film, but because it kind of it's kind of free from the ex- – because it came first, it, it's kind of free from the expectations of mm-hmm. what you're going to get from the other films. And it's – you know, if you don't know 
what you're getting. It's it's a very radically different. Um, it works very well. Um, but like for example, the character of Will Graham is not going to be the kind of character you expect if you're familiar with the uh, the remake of Red Dragon, or if you're familiar with Hannibal for that matter. Each of the actors who's played Will and William Peterson, I think, really does do a very good job in that particular interpretation of Will. Agreed. Yep. Agreed. Um, okay, uh, Emily, what uh, are you opening with? Okay, I'm going with a movie that we did cover on our show a while back, but it's so good and it's so ahead of its time and it's so smart and funny and it is a it, to me it is a perfect satire. Okay, and so that is Hammer of the Gods. It is not Thor Hammer of the Gods. That's later on my list, spoiler alert. Uh, no, my pick is Series 7, The Contenders. Oh, nice. Yeah, which came did, out in... I didn't put it on because I knew you were going to. Yeah, it, it, it was like one of the first ones to come to me because it is, for those who don't know, it is essentially um, skewering reality TV before reality TV was really popular. It came out in, I think, 99, so it's actually... Mm. Right around, I think it might have come out when Survivor was airing, but it was probably made before it hit. Um, and the concept is you are watching a marathon of a TV show called Series 7, The Contenders, which is in the country, one town, seven people are picked to kill each other, and whoever wins goes on to play the next round until they've won a certain amount of rounds and then they're okay. And it has a great cast. Um, it has little old Mary Louise Burke playing like this killer nurse. Um, you have, uh, what's her name from Silence of the Lambs? Catherine Martin. What's her name in real life? Um, uh, I can't remember the actress's name, and I feel so bad because she's so great. She's gone on, I think, to be on that medical McDreamy show that I don't know the name of. Uh, Grey's Anatomy? Yes, that's it. Um, but she's, she's the kind of woman that you, you know, People don't make the star of their movie because she doesn't look like she should be, but she's amazing and funny and great. Uh, and the movie is just very biting and it captures the thrill of reality TV perfectly. It does the whole like coming up on series seven where they give you a preview and you could see how smart the movie is in understanding everything about how it works. Uh, and it's, it's great. And if you haven't seen it, please Please mm. check it out. It features probably one of the most chilling scenes by Mary Louise Burke. Oh, yeah. um, She's Who's so like great. a killer nurse. And uh, she encapsulates... There's one of the contenders he manages to get caught up in a high-speed pursuit uh, yep. chase and gets incapacitated. And she goes in there, gives him a lethal injection. It's absolutely chilling to watch. Yeah. Oh, and she's fantastic in it. Because she just has that, you know, sweet old, old or middle-aged woman quality that then gets turned completely on its head. Mm. Um, you know, there's a teenage girl who's involved in it, who is constantly fighting with her parents about, you know, wearing the bulletproof vest and everything. And it's, it's very funny. It's very smart. And it's really worth a watch. Yeah. I think any film which features the line, get in there, honey, and kill that old man. <laughs> yeah. <worth a> watch. <laughs> My other favorite moment is the very opening scene where, um, you know, she walks into a convenience store and shoots a guy and then starts screaming, do you have any bean dip? It always makes me want bean dip, and I don't even like bean dip. Cool. Okay, um, and I guess that brings it through to myself. Now, if I was to ask you guys, what is the greatest disco movie of all time, what would you say? Oh, God. I can't make up that decision. Uh, Xanadu. <laughs> I'm sorry, did I say Xanadu? I'm sorry, I meant car wash. Okay. okay. You, you meant Xanadu, and you stand by that choice. Any other... I meant, I meant the else? Avenging Disco Godfather. 
Okay. Well, sorry to disappoint you, but the greatest disco movie of all time is Thank God It's Friday. Which and I've just I've said, being greeted with complete silence there, because, of course, no one's ever seen it. But released in it's 1978. Really and it features Jeff Goldblum, which is Ooh. a reason to watch anything, surely. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that Jurassic World isn't as good as it could have been. <laughs> That's a whole other argument. Um, basically, it follows this night, uh, Friday night, at a, at a disco club. And you, the film sort of switches between characters as you progress for the night. And at the centre, you've got Jeff uh, Goblin's character, Tony, who's this sleazy DJ. And he's been asked to uh, pick up this girl. And we see his efforts. And at the same time, we've got, uh, we've got Donna Summers is trying yeah. to get a job as a club singer. We've got uh, the Commodores as like the house band. And there's a whole subplot with their roadie trying to get to the gig on time. And he constantly like encounters all these problems. Like he crashes the van or he gets stopped by the police. And it's a certainly a movie of its time. So when you watch it, it does look very dated. But certainly if we were talking about the ultimate disco movie, this would be it. Uh, nice. Not only does it feature sex, but it also features drugs, questionable dancing, a character called the Leather Man. I mean, it's oh. just so much better than Saturday Night Fever, which obviously gets all the attention Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk about disco movies, unless I'm talking to you guys, and in which case it's Xanadu. <laughs> oh, obviously. Xanadu! <laughs> <laughs> okay, on that musical note, Lackey, what you got your second choice? There's the thematic link between my uh, second choice and my first choice. They both share a screenwriter, if I recall correctly, Frank Cottrell Boyce. Uh, back in uh, 2002, I think it was, Andy Serkis was getting a lot of... Uh, um, notice for having played Gollum in the Lord of the Rings films, but uh, there was some talk about him being nominated for an Oscar, but I, for my money, he deserved to be nominated an Oscar for an Oscar that year for his performance in 24-Hour Party People, um, which is a very irreverent, winking meta-biodoc about Tony Wilson, the uh, talk sh- the TV host uh, who uh, formed uh, the vital post-punk record label Factory Records in the late 70s and rocketed bands like the Happy Mondays, uh, Joy Division, and New Order to stardom. And uh, it's a brilliant film with a lot of brilliant performances. Uh, Andy Serkis, who plays the uh, unhinged producer Martin Hannett, steals the show, which is very difficult considering you've got a film anchored with 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 uh steve coogan playing in the lead playing tony wilson in a a cast of thousands including shirley henderson peter k christopher eccleston patty considine uh and probably a lot more than i'm not remembering but it's just it's a it's a brilliant look into the mind uh of a, a very unconventional uh, a guy who ran a very unconventional record label does a really good job of bringing the vibe of the late se- the late seventies and early eighties to life. Cool. I know it's a film that suddenly got a lot of attention when it was released over here, but then again, it's a British production, and we whenever we do something of note, we do like to get all excited about it. <laughs> I remember when it came out, but I don't remember anything after that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Under uh, the radar. Cool. Uh, Christine, second selection. All right, I made a decision, and it doesn't fit in, but I'm now going chronologically. But So pretend that last <laughs> thing didn't happen. So so my next pick is um, one that I did on the show. I think it was actually, maybe I chose it to do with Emily. I don't know, either way. I'm. It's one of those movies you see, and you're, like, super pissed that you waited that long to watch it. Like, I've been spending my life without this in it, 
and that's a shame. Uh, that's 1976's Burnt Offerings. Yeah! Uh, it's another movie that you hear talked about, but then when you see it, you're like, why isn't every single person championing this movie? Um, I really like haunted house movies, apparently. I never and really it's such a good together. twist on the haunted house movie. It really is. Um, it's Oliver Reed and Cal- Karen Black, so that's the reason to show up. But then it just is still good. And Betty Davis! And Betty Davis, sorry. <laughs> and Betty Davis. Um, it's just really, it's genuinely creepy and upsetting. And it, it shows um, a family in a haunted house, but it does it in a really interesting, effective way. And um, it's there's some really like uncomfortable scenes in it, like in the pool and stuff. Um, but I, I love it. And this is another one that I will force on people. I think that's a theme in all of my picks. Um, I just, I just, I f- urge you, if you haven't Christine checked it out, to please right it. I really like, I, you should see this movie. That's how I feel. Does, <laughs> in, in this film, does Karen Black still look like a sock puppet with googly eyes glued onto it? Because uh, I cannot stand her as an actress at I all. I think she is the she's, worst. She's really good in this one. She's fantastic. <sighs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. And Nothing. Oliver Reed plays, like, the sympathetic Oof. character, which is so exciting! It's really, really, really great. It's um, very interesting, mm-hmm. to say the least. Not it, what I expected, because it seems super by the books. And when we reviewed it, we watched it with Amityville Horror. Mm-hmm. Which is not us, effective. Yeah, most of us ended the show with, why do people talk about Amityville Horror and they don't talk about Burnt Offerings? Mm-hmm. So, why so do they talk that- about Amityville Horror at all? When you talk about, like, I, I mean, I have an affinity for horror, but when you talk about people making, like, top ten horror films, I mean, it happens every October going into the mm. season. Yep. There are things that you see repeatedly that I don't know why they continuously show up on people's lists. Mm-hmm. So Agreed. here are some other options. World burn offerings. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that I think about it, isn't isn't Burgess Meredith in that one he as well? Yes, yeah, he, he plays, does. The, the, plays the guy that rents the house to them. You know what? Maybe that says something about me, but maybe it says something about Burgess Meredith. Yeah. He does awesome stuff. Everything he is in, he makes everything better. Yeah. Cool. Um, Nick, how do you want to follow that one up? I'm going to follow it up and uh, switch up genres and go to a comedy. I'd never even heard of this film until my brother was like, I think you should sit down and watch this. And my brother tends to be right on the nose with these kind of things. And that's Walk Hard, the story of Dewey Cox. I, I, I don't know how no one ever talks about this movie. It is so unbelievably hilarious. Uh, it's a total send-up on the biopics, which is exactly what we need right now because there's just too many of them. Uh, I think it came out back in like 05 or 06, and it's just so funny. It's joke after joke. There's insane amount of cameos, uh, and there's a lot of it that was cut out, so the extended edition is that much funnier than the original film. And I, I, there's just there's nothing else to say other than it's just it's laugh out loud funny like it's almost tears in your eyes funny and John C Riley is just incredible in this absolutely incredible. I think John C Riley may have been the reason why most people tend to avoid it because to have he's more sort of like the guy you would look at as being a supporting sort of guy in, if you're doing a comedy you don't expect him to be able to carry um, a comedy. You would you would think that, but then he goes and pulls out this movie and just knocks it so far out of the park. Mm. I don't. I, John C. Riley again. He's one of those actors. I'm never sure where I stand on it. I mean, I liked him in <laughs> Magnolia. I loved him in Wreck It Ralph. I didn't really care for him. Um, uh, Talaga Nights. 
Talladega Nights, close um, enough. You nailed it. <laughs> I don't know. Is anyone else uh, seen Walkout? I haven't. No, I remember because it came out right before, right after Step Brothers, and I think it kind of got shuffled with those where nobody talked about them, but then more recently, I've heard a lot of people really love Step Brothers. Like, like that kind of oh, became so like a later hit. But I've never heard much about Walk Hard. But the whole, the fact that it was, I think the music, like they wrote all the songs and everything made me interested. But I never got around to it. It's pretty funny. I saw it when it came out. It's worth looking at. I don't know why, like kind of to echo what was just said, I don't know why something like Talladega Nights becomes this like, weird this cult favorite, hit. Yeah. this hit that people reference and quote and stuff. But like Walk Hard doesn't. Because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's just as funny, if not more so, in my opinion. And again, why do people get excited about Anchorman? I don't get that, so... I, Anchorman's just... Will, um... Fell's just conscious on street. The fight scene. The fight scene sold me. But the rest of it was yeah. not exciting. I've still got, like, another hour and a half of a movie outside of the fight <laughs> it's scene. It's a fair point. Very fair point. Cool. Right, that brings us round to Emily again. Okay, my number five, or whatever number, is not funny, and it is not light. I went with something really dark. Uh, I think this is the newest movie on my list. It is from Simon Rumley, and it is Red, White, and Blue. This movie will make you want to kill yourself. It is incredibly depressing. Um, It is about three characters that get connected. It is Amanda Fuller plays a kind of... I can't remember if she's like a, a reformed junkie or if she was abused... But she is HIV positive, and basically she sleeps around. She kind of hates men and doesn't care what happens from there. There is Mark Center is a just kind of like a nice guy, who's like a but also kind of like he's in a band, blah blah. And his mother is dying of cancer, so he's taking care of her. And then there is Noah Taylor, Noah Tyler, Taylor, Taylor. Uh, you know who he is. He's British, and he is a uh, vet, a veteran kind of like Green Beret veteran, like really rough veteran with some PTSD. And the way they connect is really rough and hard. And really anything I say I realize now kind of gives things away. Um, But those three actors are so good. And it's a movie that um, all of them are right and wrong, but their decisions really screw each other over in terrible, terrible ways. It is hard to watch. Um, but it is just fantastic. And I think Simon Rumley, who also did The Living and the Dead, um, and he just did something new that people are starting to talk about. He, I think, is just fantastic and makes movies uh, with a certain kind of, like, unforgivenness about him. Uh, and this one is really hard to watch. I don't really ever want to watch it again, but I kind of do. And I want more people to watch it, even though um, they're going to feel really bad about humanity after they do. What a way to sell your film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, watch it, but don't watch it. I mean, you're going to hate yourself, but, but you should watch it. Watch it. You're going to feel bad. Yeah, they're totally going to put that on the, bo- the back of the But it's it's really good. Um, it's a hard watch, but it's it's one that I think from there, something about that director is he can get fantastic performances out of his actors, and he does it here and in The Living and the Dead. So I highly recommend it. And he has a humanity about his characters that I think is really important. Cool. I mean, that's, uh, it certainly showed up on the list of the top... 50 extreme uh, movies of this de- last decade. I can so. see that, because it's rough. It's very rough. Um, yeah. What's the name of it again? Uh, Red, White, and Blue. Something Put to pair with Breckham for Dream, perhaps. It's along those lines, yeah. Because it it's very hard to watch, um, but it's really good. And again, the performances are so good. 
Right, so Emily, obviously you just recommended red, white and blue. Uh, which again brings it back to myself. Uh, this next choice is probably our first documentary selection of the evening and it's probably going to again divide opinion and that's the 1999 documentary um, about pro wrestling Beyond the Mat. Oh yeah! Um, I mean, yeah, that's great. Yeah, again, I don't know if we have any fans of wrestling. I guess Emily is a fan. I, I'm married to a, a man who dressed like Randy Savage, WrestleMania 7 for our wedding. Um, so, yeah. So, um, I have working knowledge of not as dedicated as Emily, obviously. But. Well, I've, I've had to learn a little more than I used to know. But, <laughs> but that is a great documentary. I've heard of it. I have friend. I'm not particularly into wrestling, but I have friends who are. And I remember hearing a lot about it um, from them when it came out. Yeah. It's going to say, because... Uh, unfortunately, we live in this world where if you say you like wrestling, that you have everyone's first reaction is, oh, don't you know no it's fake? fake. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm a grown adult. I do know. And it's not fake. It's predetermined. Right. You um, know what? But, Movies? Yeah, they wrote that script before they started filming it. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. But, you know, there's some people who like to just live in reality all the time and mm-hmm. fun people they are. But... When I obviously like to challenge people's opinion, and this is the film I use. Uh, more recently, I've also started using Wrestling Isn't Wrestling, which mm. again is another sort of. It basically argues that wrestling is is just the finest form of sports entertainment. Yeah. Go with it, sports mm. entertainment. The documentary itself, when it first came out, this was during a period of wrestling when the industry wasn't admitting that it's predetermined. Um, and the director um, is directed by Barry Blustein, um, and he basically opens with a childhood memory of that we went to a wrestling show and then saw one of the wrestlers um, get into a car with his family and his kids, and he then realized that this wasn't the guy who's in the ring was a completely separate guy than who was outside the ring. Um, and the film itself, it follows three wrestlers in the various states of the career. We have Mick Foley, who at this point is still Mankind, um, and he's wrestling with the WWE still. We've got Terry Funk, who's at this point contemplating retirement. And we also have Jake Snake Roberts, who is really, when the documentary, he's at a career low. Uh, basically, he's addicted to crystal meth and crack. He's wrestling like backwater towns. He's Mickey Rourke's oh, yeah. ram in the wrestler. The wrestler was very, I think, more based on Jake than anyone else, in my opinion. But um, obviously. Obviously, since the documentary has got clean, he went into DDP's yoga program and got himself clean. But mm-hmm. this really shows him at a low. But the documentary itself, it goes behind the scenes. It shows how they put together wrestling shows. And it really gets it, meet, has sort of really open access of how the WWE works and why the wrestlers do what they do. Um, and you get to see such wonderful scenes such as the match that uh, Foley has with The Rock. It's <laughs> yes. an I Quit match at the 99 Rumble. And it cuts between what's happening in the ring and you cut to Mick Foley's wife and she's there with his kids and she's absolutely horrified of what he's putting himself through. And after the match, she actually has a go at The Rock for <laughs> hitting, him so, hitting her husband so many times with a steel chair. Uh, despite the fact that Mick Foley being the kind of wrestler he is, he's a hardcore wrestler. Mm-hmm. So he's always trying to get that big bump and put himself in more extreme sort of situations. Uh, was the one who's actually encouraging The Rock to do what he did in the ring, but... If uh, you're curious at all about wrestling or why people love wrestling, uh, Beyond the Mat is the documentary I would recommend yeah. to watch. It's a great intro to everything, I think. I'd, and 
don't know if our non-wrestling fans have to think about it or... <laughs> I think it's a good education for non-wrestling. Or it's like a good kind of... It answers a lot of the questions for non-wrestling fans, I think. It's one of those things where it shows you how the sausage is made and you're like, oh, all right, right on. And off you go. What I found really interesting, though, was it was just like you pointed out, Elwood, the match where it's showing, like, obviously, Mick Foley is mankind fighting The Rock. But then later, when Mick Foley adapted his alter egos as, like, dude love and stuff, he would go on to team up with The Rock. So it's, like, really interesting. You know, I kind of want to see how that behind the scenes went. Like, if the wife, you know, kind of brought up to The Rock, like, hey, remember that time you did this to my husband? Like, try to look out for him this time. Like, well, it's interesting because The Rock and, and Mick Foley, after the match, they're having a conversation. They're like best friends, and they're yeah. like, "Oh, it was you, this thing, and I, when I did this, and McFoley's like, yeah, I was like, I was like trying to stop you, and you were like, just hit me again with the chair.'" <laughs> and then The Rock like talks to, um, he has a conversation with McFoley's kids, and he's like going on about them going to Disney World the next day, <laughs> and it's like the strange thing that obviously these two guys have just been, for all intents and purposes, beating the hell out of each other, are now like can just carry on like best friends. Yep, it um, is an industry like no other. It is. Um, right. Lackey, what's your uh, next selection? Um, my next selection is um, an indie horror comedy that's getting a little bit more notice, not a whole lot more, but a little bit more notice uh, because its um, director uh, made a, uh, a, a fairly, uh, not, I wouldn't necessarily say high profile, but he got a lot of acclaim for his film last year. Uh, the director's Jeremy Solnier, and uh, the movie I'm picking, He last year he did Blue Ruin, but I'm picking his uh, 2007 movie Murder Party, um, oh. which is a little bit of an obscurity. Um, like I said, since Blue Ruin got a lot of critical acclaim, it's getting a little bit more notice now, but it is probably my favorite horror comedy of the last 20 years. It is a hilarious takedown of um of, of just human nature and uh pretentious idiots uh it's about a lonely guy who gets invited on halloween to a party uh to a quote-unquote murder party by people he doesn't know so he quickly makes a a night suit of a knightly armor out of cardboard boxes and duct tape and goes to this party what he does not realize is that the uh, party is being hosted by a group of pretentious, starving artists who want to kill him to <laughs> impress their uh, their their patron, who claims to be this very rich guy with connections to the Russian mob. And it is just hilarious from start to finish. Uh, brilliant acting by a bunch of people you've never heard of in ridiculous Halloween costumes. One guy is dressed up as, I guess, one of the gang members from the Warriors, and there's a woman dressed mm -hmm. up as Priz from Blade Runner. And every every five minutes, there's a line that will work its way into your day-to-day -day vernacular. I mean, I found myself saying whenever somebody says something I really like, like in this film, I say, I like you. You're my new best friend. <laughs> or uh, other lines like, um, uh, you know, hey, let's play, let's play uh, Extreme Truth or Dare. It's all the kids are playing it in Belarus. Or um, uh, fuck the scene, everybody dies. Um, or Paul, take off your vampire pants. It's just, <laughs> it's, it is a hilarious film, and it's very. If you've seen Blue Ruin, it's in, so incredibly different from Blue Ruin, and features most of the same actors. Um, but it, it is just a, a brilliant film that deserves a lot more notice. 
does it all take place kind of in one central location? The, well, obviously at the party, but is it at the party for the entirety of the film, or do they kind of cut away mm. to other things? They cut away to other things, but most of the bulk of the film is at the party. Because the way you're describing it, it kind of sounds like Rope, the film that Alfred Hitchcock did, where the two guys kill somebody, stuff right. them in a trunk, invite people over to kind of like show that they can get away with something like that in order to impress somebody. Uh, I could probably see I, what I mean. I don't think I've ever seen Rope, but from what I understand of Rope, the main thing Rope is known for doing is like the whole film was done in one take. It wasn't actually done in one take, but it looks like it was done in one take. Yeah, like Silent and, House. Yeah. Uh, Murder Party doesn't have that, but yeah, it is kind of, uh, kind of that, but like it's done as a dark comedy. Okay, I might have to check that out. Yeah, I've heard of it, and I feel like I tried putting it on my queue a few years ago, and it like it didn't show up, kind of thing. But thanks for the reminder. You're welcome. Yeah, it's what I'm here for. Hey, hey. It also uh, it's kind of refreshing to also see a movie that uses the hedge trimmer as the weapon of choice rather than a chainsaw. That is a good one. Yeah. It, it, it is rather it is rather good. I like that. Uh, no, good choice, Lucky. And um, I, uh, I, in in honor of it, I sometimes call my cat Sir Lancelot. That is not my. <laughs> that is not his. Particularly when he decides he wants to sit on my chair. It's not his name, but really, Sir Lancelot. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, Christine. What have you got for your third selection this evening? Hi, my my third selection is 1981's Road Games. I love, yeah. yeah. Well, hey, hi. I love this movie. Um, This is another one that I always wonder why it doesn't get brought up more when people are talking about, um, it's not, I wouldn't classify it as a slasher, but it's in a similar vein. It's like a trucker movie, and I have a soft spot for movies that involve involve trucks or truckers. I like backroads thrillers. Uh, this is for me like one of the best. It mm. subverts a lot of genres. It pulls in a lot of um, inspiration from like there's like giallo things going on in it. It's great. Stacy Keach is in it. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. So you think like 1981? Those two people, black gloves, strangling, and you would think it's one of those movies that people would not be able to shut up about. But at least in my circles, it doesn't get brought up that often. It shows up on TCM Underground here and there. (gasps) That's amazing. I've I've never even heard... You're describing a cross between, like, Duel and Deep Red. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. In Australia. And I've never heard of it. It's so great. It It is. Road games. Okay, that's going on my list. It comes up the exploitation discussion. It does. Writing it down, and I'm pointing a lot of little arrows to it. Well, it comes with a high recommend. And yeah, you're right, Em. It does get lumped in because it's one of those, like, let's go to Australia and make a movie. <laughs> but we can do anything. It, but And that's great, but it gives you so much more than that. Yeah. Like, it's not just exploding cars and, and, and wild stunts. There's, no, like, there's a really interesting... No, no, not that there's... But, the, but, but this, like, if you go in with that being your expectations, this will blow it out of the water. There's so much more character stuff going on. And, and it does a lot of interesting stuff with some kind of, you know... Genres that, granted, at, in 1981 maybe hadn't been overdone, but mm-hmm. but when you go back and you're watching things retroactively, like, you, yeah, how many times can I see like a lady a lady get killed? But you, know, you can see it a couple more times in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it was featured in uh, the exploitation documentary, Not Quite Hollywood, yep. which mm-hmm. makes me wonder why it wasn't picked up. I mean, obviously we had a lot of films that were featured in that documentary, things like Turkey Shoot. 
Yeah. Um, which again just just seemed to blow up. But for some reason, this film, uh, this film, Dark Age, and there was another one which I was really frustrated I couldn't get hold of. Fair Game with oh, like yeah. three films I really sort of came away from that documentary and was like I want to see these films and they just proved to be an absolute pain in the ass to find but mm-hmm. um, Road Games is, is well worth checking out especially if you're a Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis fan she's like in prime screen queen territory and like yeah. Jamie yeah. Lee in that one too she gets to be a little maybe, sassy maybe my favourite Jamie Lee because sometimes she kind of falls flat for me uh, this is I think she's really firing on all cylinders in this one agreed right. uh, Nick what you got for us uh, my number three is Smoke and Aces. Good choice. Um, this came out a couple years ago, and it was a movie that I was so excited to see in theaters, and then I saw it, and I was disappointed, but I bought it, and I started watching it more and more, and it's really grown on me to just be something I just absolutely enjoy. Uh, Jeremy Piven plays a magician who's kind of gotten mixed up with the mob, and now there's a hit on him, and all these different mercenaries are after him, and meanwhile, the CIA's trying to stop him, or the FBI, someone's trying to stop him, uh, Ryan Reynolds and uh, Andy Garcia, and like Ray Liotta's in there too, and uh, Ben Affleck shows up, and then Chris Pine, I didn't even realize that Chris Pine was in that movie until like going through the IMDb page. And I was like, wait a second, that's Chris Pine. And then I just lost my mind. Um, but I don't know. That's just, it's such a, just the action and, and the, and how tense it is and how well paced it is. And the soundtrack is great. Mm. I just, I don't know. There's something about it. I just, I can watch it just over and over again, but it's weird that I felt like the first time, like I was disappointed, but then it grew on me more and more. So I'd, I'd be interested to like, talk to me again, if I could first coming out of the movie, be like, why didn't you like it? Cause you love it now. Mm, that's the Zoolander effect. I believe it <laughs> could be Zoolander effect. I will write that down. It's Joe Carnahan. Uh, again, he's one of those directors oh, who's never He did uh, The Grey, right? He did that. I think he did The A-Team, like the most recent mm. adaptation yeah. of that. And he did not. The Grey. Which is probably the closest, I would say, to, to this film. This mm-hmm. is slightly lighter than Narc. But, yeah, I love the fact that here he's obviously trying to make the crime genre sexy again, the same way that Tarantino did. And the fact that we have all these... Uh, we have at the centre Jeremy Piven, who is just basically doing what he does did on Entourage, um, except we're a different Playing character. a dick. I mean, but he plays a dick so well. Yeah. <laughs> He's awesome. I'm almost surprised that Guy Ritchie hasn't done a style of film like this, or like done a film like based on this kind of concept, because I feel like he's always trying to do some kind of gangster film. Be well, because Guy Ritchie went the same way as M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. He believed his own hype. Yeah, I could see Unfortunately. that. Unfortunately. Once you do swept away, it's hard to come back from that. <laughs> rock and roll. I enjoyed rock and roll, if that if that means anything, but maybe it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I did. I've, I've never seen rock and roll. <laughs> Nor so. have I. Yeah. But I think the thing with Smoking Aces, I love the fact that you have all these different hitmen, and none of them are, like, professional. They've all got their own sort of approach. Obviously, we've got the Tremor Bros, who are, like, these psychotic neo-Nazis who just go in like a sledgehammer. Um, and basically, they're like real sort of roughing it. They've got like their own little generators and flares and chainsaws and sawn off shotguns. And then we've got Alicia Keynes here, who plays a lesbian hit woman who's uh, sort of like yeah. disguising it. it, goes in for like disguises and things like that. Um, and then we've got Ben Affleck, who, who shows up in this. And I don't know why people are always so down on Ben Affleck. I always really like Ben Affleck. He's I like me him in this. Too. I yeah. like him in this too because it's it's, it's a bad he's. Rap. 
he's in there enough. He's got that mustache thing going on. I really dig that. He able he's able to work with his little team of bounty hunters, and the way they play off each other is great. Yeah. Well, and when he plays a jerk, he's really good. Like he should play a jerk more often. I think that's part of where he lost his audience was when he kind of was not just the JLo thing, but when he kept being the leading man and the romant- leading romantic. I think he's much more interesting when he's kind of a dick. I can yeah, see that. he doesn't really have, I don't find he has a really lot of, a, a whole lot of like innate likability. Yeah, he's, he lacks that charm, which is why he was perfect for Gone Girl. Mm. Uh-huh. There's also a character in this film which reminds me of uh, one of our fellow line members, the Vern. Does <laughs> anyone on. want to? Do you want to name it? Get Go it, on. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm Go sh- on. As my, I love that. I should start by highlighting the fact that I do love the Vern. So this isn't a negative in any ways, but there is a character in this film who I'm sure they were going. They, I don't. Know, they met Vern, but they decided, <laughs> oh, let's create create a character that's basically Vern as a kid. <laughs> oh, I was hoping you'd pick this guy. Oh man! <laughs> because we have this. One well, of the characters he stumbles across this. He gets uh, shot up, and he basically stumbles across his caravan. And there's this kid who's like hyped up. I don't know if he's got ADD or what, but he's in his little cratty suit, and he's got like the lazy eye patch, and he's just talking all this smack to this guy who's like missing two fingers and bleeding out everywhere and he's like you're looking at me bitch look at me and he's like just suddenly whipping out his nunchucks and shit but he like talks like 500 words a second he's he's he has no reason to be in it the same reason as same way that the uh, kid who shouts pancakes in cabin fever hmm. has no reason to be there but you're so glad he is there yeah it's that's a good scene um that makes me laugh so much that you said that so if you've uh not had the van, I would certainly uh, recommend checking out the As You Watch podcast, nice. one of the many great uh, podcasts on the Lamb Podcasting Network. Check it out now at largeassmovieblogs.com. Right, now before I uh, dig myself into a deeper hole, Emily, what you got for us? Okay, I'm going to go, my next pick is another very underrated horror film from 1970-something or other. This movie had a remake that I don't. I think even less people saw the remake than saw this one. Uh, but it is Robert Fwest's End Soon the Darkness. So this is a very slow-moving thriller of sorts. Uh, it's about two young women who are British, and they are going on a vacation in the French countryside. They're riding their bicycles. It's a lovely day. They get into a little fight. They separate. One of them, Pamela Franklin, who was also in The Innocents, um, comes like rides away then comes back for her friend and her friend is missing her bike is there but she can't find her friend so essentially it is just her looking for her friend uh and as she's trying to figure out what happened to her it's you know slowly getting scarier and scarier it is all takes place during the day so it's one of those horror movies that filmed in daylight and really chilling um what it does so well is Pamela Franklin's character doesn't speaks a little bit of French, but not much. And she is in the middle of the countryside. So most people there do not speak English and it does not sub do use any subtitles when she's trying to, when they're talking back to her. So if you don't speak Fran- French, like I don't, you have no idea. You're right in her shoes. I love when movies do that. I'm yeah, like, yeah. And because it, it, 
you feel dis- just as disconnected as the character does. And, and because you have no idea, yeah. everything is from her point of view. So you are in the boat with her the whole time. You have absolutely no idea who to trust, who not to trust. There's a whole bunch of shifty characters, but you don't know if they're shifty or just like French hicks or what. And if you've ever been in a country where you didn't speak the language and like had that moment of like, oh shit, what do I do? Mm-hmm. It captures that so well. It has a really good twist. Um, it's the director who did Dr. Fives, which okay. I debated putting on here, but I'm like, oh, everybody's seen Dr. Fives. And if they haven't, then everybody go see the abominable Dr. Fives because it's, it's fantastic. But it's the way Dr. Fives is amazing. This is amazing in a totally different way. And I, I always really respond to that in a director when he can do completely different films. Uh, and it's just a really good, like the definition of a slow burn uh, so go for it. It was remade with, I think, Amber Heard and Carl Urban. And it just it's just not that exciting. Um, but this one is just like you need to watch it when you're going to sit down and watch it with the lights off because it's really slow. It takes its time to build, but it's really worth it. And it's it gets there. So go check it out. I watched this a few years ago. I barely remember it other than that. Mm. I remember not really liking it. OK. And I'm rereading my review now. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, I thought it was tedious, and I figured out the twist very early. Uh-huh. Um, I can understand because it's it is slow. So if if it doesn't, and I think that's kind of the same description goes for any movie that takes its time. If if it doesn't get you, like in the beginning, if you're not with it. It's just going to be boring. And I could totally uh-huh. see this movie boring someone. And I I don't disrespect you for not liking it. I but I barely remember it, so maybe I should give it another chance. It's possible. Um, you know, it's I, we are talking probably saw it about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, long enough ago, I mean, recently enough that I actually, you know, it was while I, you know, during since I've been film blogging, so I have a review that I wrote that I'm looking at right now. But even all I remember, all I really remember about it is bicycles and Pamela Franklin. Yeah. And her really unflattering shorts. I have seen this movie. Okay. Yeah. And I saw the remake. Oh. Okay, yeah. Clearly it didn't have the same effect on me that it did on you. Oh. I'm thinking, like, Amber Heard, I saw this movie. Uh. And yeah, I, I watched them both back-to-back, actually, which don't, I don't recommend. Oh, I would not do that. Because the, the remake just, like, sours you on what you just well, watched. Well, the remake just isn't good. Like, it's, it's just, it, it's just not good. I think it's I saw this because thing. of just, you, Em. Yeah. Oh, I think I need to rewatch it because I don't have a strong enough memory of it. And that's well, sad. maybe my under the radar pick wasn't a good one. I think it was. Thank you. Okay. Or just watch Dr. Fives. I mean, if you haven't. Yeah, well. Cool. Right. Um, anyone else got anything to add on that one? Nick, have you? Uh, you know what? I've never heard of any of these movies that you guys have mentioned. Yeah, so I'm just writing everything down and I'm going to have a lot of Netflix to do on. Groovy. Um,. Right, uh, onto myself now. Uh, the next film is a film which belongs to that very unique of genres, uh, the Bruce exploitation genre, uh, where <laughs> following Bruce Lee's untimely death, the filmmaker, filmmakers and studios decided that his legacy should be cashed in on. Uh, so they started churning out movies with either actors that looked alike or that sat, had names that sounded <laughs> like Bruce Lee. You, it's very, you would never... You, I don't think you could ever have any other actor that would inspire this sort of uh, genre, but it exists. It's probably one of the more obscure ones, but 
the film, my next selection is one of the more random selections, should we say, and that's The Dragon Lives Again, or Deadly Han Hands of Kung Fu, uh, directed by Key Law from 1977. Uh, the film itself, it follows on from Bruce Lee, who, having suffered his untimely death, wakes up to find himself now in the underworld, and for one reason or another, decides to set up a gym and allow him to continue to share his martial arts skills, only to find himself under attack from the King of the Underworld, who, for some reason or another, has decided to recruit all these famous faces to act as his personal assassins. And this is a film which answers the questions of who would win a fight with Bruce Lee took on James Bond, Clint Eastwood, Dracula, a bunch of skeletons, um, and Emmanuel, just to name a few Ooh. of the random <laughs> show up in this movie. <laughs> this sounds magnificent. I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anytime you put throw in a random Emmanuel reference. <laughs> I mean, this is, again, the, it kind of makes sense because this is 77. So the Emmanuel films are sort of at their all time high. When so in doubt, throw in Emmanuel. Yeah. The actress who plays her doesn't even get a last name in the credits. She's just credited as Jenny. <laughs> um,. But yeah, as I said, you have, on one hand, you have all these sort of celebrity faces that I said you have, James Bond, uh, you have Clint Eastwood uh, show up. You also have more random characters, like you have The Godfather randomly show up, who's played by a Japanese actor. Uh, uh, we also get to see him fight people like the One-Armed Swordsman um, and Zakatoin. The opening, it, it sets it up as the film that's dedicated to the millions who love Bruce Lee. And surely you just can't help but wonder there's a small bit cut off that and now we plan to cash in on these people <laughs> dedicated um, to you so that you give it money yeah it is probably one of the most batshit insane kung fu movies i've ever seen it opens with bruce lee appearing to have an enormous erection which turns out to be his nunchucks <laughs> i like that uh, we also get to see a move called the third leg of bruce lee does it involve what? the erection made of nunchucks? Um, basically, he's like fighting this guy, and then a third leg just like appears up out of nowhere. Oh, I need to learn that trick. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, the fact is that as well as the the fact that you have all this martial arts action happening, the film decides not to focus on Bruce Lee's legacy, but on his penis. His okay. penis gets so much attention in this movie. Well, isn't that his legacy? If you think of like physically. I, apparently it does. Um, certainly the King of the Underworld's concubines seem to like seem to like constantly reference it. We have lines like, when a man's endowed like Bruce, the girls are bound to want him. <laughs> I mean, it's, it like verges between being funny to tasteless. And there's a scene <laughs> where he's apologizing for cheating on his wife. So you're never sure what to make of it. And I mean, spoiler alert, the film ends with Bruce Lee flying off on, on a wire like Superman. Just like randomly across a, qu a quarry, and then it just ends. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, this is a film. All it needs is a cat birthday party, and you got <laughs> And a unicorn of some sort. Well, yeah. Oh, um, God. The throbbing erection of Bruce Lee coming to cinemas in 1977. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you like this one, you can, there's also the film The Clones of Bruce Lee, where they, uh, where following Bruce's death, they create free clones and fight uh, villains, super villains. Kind of like a kung fu version of the Avengers. <laughs> oh wow but that film also features a fight scene in a backyard where I don't know if they're renting someone's house but you actually see a washing line in the backyard no again I don't know if it was intentional they're like trying to show that here's an employer that 
you know, allows his minions to do the washing at work or whatnot, or The Dragon Lives Again or Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. For, nice. If you want an entry point into Bruceploitation, there you have it. <laughs> I'm guessing no one else has seen this because no I have not. Direct like no. I do. But now I must. Indeed. Now you must. Coming soon to the movie of the month for the Lambcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Lackey, where do you want to uh, take things next? Um, I'm going to take things to a movie made in the mid to late 90s. Um, I think 98. Uh, a film that got a fair amount of attention uh, when it first came out. It was the first feature film uh, by Darren Aronofsky. It's called Pi. Yeah. Um, and since then, it's become overshadowed by his his later work. And it doesn't get, I think, the kind of attention that it really deserves. I think it's a very, very strong uh, psychological thriller and a really strong debut mm-hmm. about a uh, a mathematician who's um, working uh, kind of working to um, crack the pattern, even though there supposedly is not uh, a pattern behind the movements of the stock market. And he's pursued by two people: the uh, a, a, a woman from a uh, a Wall Street a Wall Street uh, financial firm on one hand, on the other hand, uh, an Orthodox Jew who connecting uh, his work to the Kabbalah, um, and it's just a very interesting examination of various different themes: uh, the connection between you know pattern and chaos, the connection between uh, the sacred, the divine, and the uh, I guess the the material, the relationship between genius and madness, and it's 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 a, a great film uh, with some really 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 good performances and a very striking, very bold style, shot in black and white, um, which was a little bit of a well, obviously it's a rarity nowadays, but really made it stand out in '98. Um, beautiful, beautiful soundtrack, uh, and just a lot of wonderful shots of computers and halfway disassembled and typing into uh, hybridized Apple II computers, and I just go gaga for that kind of stuff. So, like I said, it's not, it doesn't get the amount of notice it used to, because Darren Aronofsky's gone to other things, but I, I, it, I, these days it really is under the radar. People don't, I think, give it the attention they used to, and that it really deserves. Yeah, I'm realizing I haven't seen it since I saw it on video in, like, 1999, and I do need to really revisit it. You do. Mm. Yeah. It is known. Mm-hmm. The problem I have with Pi, um, and this might be just the fact I'm useless at maths, when I'm watching it, I have the feeling that I would appreciate this more if I was smarter. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, that's, like, one of those, is the math real, or is it just, it like, cube? Like you, where they're like doing the math, but you're like, okay, I'm really bad at math, but I know that that's not a prime that that is not a prime number because it ends in two. The so math it could just be that they're trying to make you feel dumb. The the math in pi seems legit, but I'm hopeless when it comes to math. I mm. I sometimes need a calculator for basic like two digit arithmetic, and it, it it pulls me in. So yeah, yeah. Christine, uh, are you a fan of pi or? Um, I kind of feel the way you do about it. It <laughs> it's. Um, I, I similar to the way I feel about Primer, which I know is a really good movie and I really like, but I I feel like it's wasted on me. <laughs> like I go, oh, I would understand this a lot better if I was a little <laughs> bit smarter. But <laughs> but I, I do I do um, like Pi. I'm not a huge Aronofsky fan, 
I mean, I guess he, he's great, but like, yeah. I, this is probably one of the ones that I like um, well, more than others. Cool. Yeah. Um, and Nick, do you have? I think you you've mentioned before you're an Aronofsky fan. Is that right? I enjoy Aronofsky, um, but this movie I can't stand. I don't like it. I don't know why anyone praises it. He caught a real lucky break, and he was able to make the films that he went on to make. Um, that's why I kind of stayed quiet and just let Blackie <laughs> go on and, and talk about it. But personally, I just I don't I don't understand the appeal and why people enjoy this movie so much. I really don't get it. This it's like for me, this is up there with like Christopher Nolan's following. Like I don't I don't understand the appeal or why people enjoy that either. Both of these films are very boring, and I just I would rather be doing other things with my time. Rape yours at dawn, rehack. <laughs> <laughs> I will not. I will not have my precious pie impugned in such a way. I demand <laughs> satisfaction, sir. Well, hey, at least your hockey team won the cup this year. Yes, yes. Even though I oh, forgot nice. that the game was on. Oh. Such, they such, don't need to know. <laughs> such is my shame. I must wear it like a scarlet letter. <laughs> For shame. Yes. Shame on you, Lackey. Okay. Well, Nick and uh, Lackey decide to go off and have a duel. Uh, Christine, <laughs> what do you have for us? Um, all right, well, my next pick is a movie that I don't know if I can defend it in its quality from start to finish, but but it's it's something that is near and dear to my heart. It's a movie from 2001 called Sugar and Spice. It is um, oh, high school yeah. cheerleaders robbing banks. I don't know if anybody remembers this movie. And they all got like little masks on and they do they bikinis those, and stuff. The little yeah, there's like masks. A, the Betty, yeah, the, like, the little doll masks, and um, it's really funny and really smart and really satirical, and way better than it has any right to be. And it, it, but it struggles. Its runtime is padded as it is, and it only comes in at like an hour and five seventy-five minutes, <laughs> minutes yeah. or something like that. And the end is really weird and feels not like the original ending because I don't think it is. But boy, oh boy, is it funny! And um, Mar- Marley Shelton is in it. She's um, and Melissa George is in it. These are all people that I absolutely adore, and, and it James kind of Marsden. Oh my God, James Marsden! Marsden is so, so funny. He's playing earnest and sincere. He is wonderful. James Marsden's great. Oh yeah, Mina Savari. I almost forgot about her. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of in the vein of like a Jawbreaker, which could be on this list, but I didn't put it on this list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, those are movies that I am very passionate about because they spoke to me as as a youth. Uh, I wasn't that young when this came out, but there's definitely something really, really funny. Like, Melissa George's character is obsessed with Conan O'Brien and absolutely in love with him. <laughs> Forgot about in that. In a creepy way, and that makes me feel good about me. <laughs> it's really sweet. It has, like, this really, um, like, like it's not a mean movie. Like, you compare it to Jawbreaker, which is a very is, yeah, yeah. mean movie. Like, it's the kind of polar opposite of that with a similar sensibility. Yes. But, like, in that same, let's watch these girls who are clearly not in high school yeah. do something, you know, the Donnas could have played at their prom, like, mm-hmm. in that, that vein of, of film, right. which I which I think get a bad rap sometimes, but they're often really mocking what, mm-hmm. what they're talking about, rather than, like, as earnest as it is, it's still very satirical. Yes, definitely. I wish the Donnas had played my prom. I know. Well, back then, back in the early 2000s, I think they could have. <laughs> they were in every movie. Either their song was playing or they were in it. I think they were in Drive Me Crazy, the Melissa Joan Hart movie. I don't know. It's 
I, lo- I love the movies. If anybody ever wants to talk about them, you know where to find <laughs> I, me. Well, I know I was shows. really, really shocked when the Donnas showed up in high tension. I was not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> they really get you with that one. Yeah. That's the twist. That's the real twist. <laughs> the Donnas were calling from inside the house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, how come whenever we go to... There's always some random note we end every film on in this this. That's appropriate. So. I've got Jules breaking out. I've got Donna's phoning from inside the house. I've got comparisons to other podcasters being drawn. So good. Uh, Nick, what uh, are you going to throw into this uh, ball of confusion that this is randomly turning into? My number four is actually a biopic. Uh, it's Bronson, a 2008 film by Nicholas Winding Road Refn, uh, starring Tom Hardy. And what I'm pretty sure is the first film I saw Tom Hardy in and made me fall in love with Tom Hardy. Uh, and ever since then, I feel like every film he's in, uh, just he keeps getting better. Even though the film might not be as strong, Tom Hardy is still, to me, very impressive. Um, I don't know there's just something about this movie, the way it's stylized and co- combined with the score. And, and Tom Hardy's performance sells this film. Without Tom Hardy, I don't think you have as strong a movie as you do. It's really a tour de force in that he carries every single scene he's in. And just sells the hell out of this movie. And it actually made me want to look up the Charlie Bronson character. And what a wackadoo kind of guy. Holy hell, what a movie to make about somebody. Um, but yeah, Bronson, it's it's superbly fantastic, I feel. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, and it's, what I loved about the way the film is shot, it's not shot as you would expect a film about Bronson to be shot. I know when it was first announced and they were saying we're going to do the Bronson biopic, I thought it was going to be like just a very sort of straightforward film and they'd make it sort of like for the sort of beer and pizza sort of crowd to be like this tough guy sort of prison movie. Uh, but instead it kind of takes on a weird sort of art house vibe. And I think that's a lot, again, a lot to do with the fact, uh, reference it's directing who obviously gave us only God forgives, uh, pusher and drive. So he's already sort of got that, that sort of style, but really with this sort of film, as you said, uh, Tom Hardy was really sort of establishing himself, as the human chameleon. Mm. I mean, here he's completely different than any other character you've ever seen him play. Um, And it is a real sort of journey you go on with this character and the way he presents Brunson as this sort of raconteur, uh, presenting his life story to this sort of theatre of people and and that you have like this weird laugh track that kicks in when he's like cracking jokes on particular scenes or moments from his life. Yeah, and and his performance in this makes me excited for hopefully his neck bi- his next biopic work uh, when he plays Elton John in Rocket Man. That's going to be something Ooh. special. I I cannot wait for that to happen. That could be amazing. Really? He's actually playing Elton John. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's it's been confirmed for at least a year or two now. Uh, I don't know what where the project is stage wise, but that's happening. That, that would finally give us an Elton John that you would believe would win a fight when he does uh, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. There you go. <laughs> there you go. You do have to remember Bertie Taupin wrote those lyrics. I've never <laughs> seen a, a Refn film, but, uh, I, you know, I have seen Lost River, and I am the only person in the world, apparently, who liked Lost River. I don't think it was I liked great, it. but... I liked it. But, but I, if, if Refn's work is anything like that... Well, Refn is my new best friend, so I, I have to remember, always have to remember to watch some stuff by this guy. If if you liked Lost River, then I think you would really enjoy Only God Forgives. That's another movie that uh, doesn't seem a lot of people like. It, they don't, 
and it it's not it's it, it is it is but i it's for me it reminded me a lot when i was watching lost river it reminded me a lot of that movie cool i think bronson certainly is if you're looking for an entry point bronson would be, oh totally would be the is these most accessible work um but i love again i loved only god forgives i know it, it polarized opinion i think am i right in saying that uh, you wanted to reset it in new orleans neck uh, yes, I did yeah, on a Lambcast episode, and I wanted to reset it. Yes, yes. I don't know why I'm explaining it again, but yes. Just go check out the episode. It's a pretty good film I laid out. But Cool. Right, and that brings us back around to Emily. Okay, uh, we're going to the 80s. We are going to one of my favorite actors who is rarely the lead in anything, but he is so good, and if you ever hear him speak, he is, also seems like a really interesting, smart human being. And that is Michael Ironside. And the movie I'm talking about is Visiting Hours. Uh, So this is the movie that gives you Michael Ironside in a mesh tank top, uh, which is very important and is certainly one of the reasons I'm recommending it. Um, But it's also, it it might have been a video nasty. It really is so not a video nasty, but I think it might have gotten lumped into that. On, I think if you read the synopsis and kind of like watched a trailer, it would feel just very of its time of, oh, it's just another thriller about a crazy guy killing women but it's so much smarter than that and because what it is it's a movie about a man who hates woman women it is a movie about misogyny um and so it makes for you know when you watch it kind of realizing it's actually very smart um it just has more to say about it than other movies where it's just kind of glorifying violence against women and Ironside is great in it, um, and I, William Shatner has a small role, so if that doesn't sell you, what does? Uh, and uh, I think it's on Instant Watch, so it's uh, highly recommended. Uh, yeah, Visiting Hours, it, it wasn't one of the banned films. It was, uh, it's on the non-prosecuted Okay, list. yeah, I knew it was lumped into that discussion. But yeah, when it was released, they, they cut about a minute out of it, mm-hmm. and they released it back in 86, so... Yeah. Um, Certainly, it has a variety of obviously being on the list, uh, but it wasn't one of the banned films. Much like the Evil Dead, Evil Dead is often the often film they say was banned, but it was uh, never actually banned. It wasn't one of those films. But um, Ironside definitely always a good selling point. Um, Anyone else else seen this now? It's been on my list of retro horror movies to watch for a long time, and I have no real reason or excuse or, or justification why I have not gotten around to it. Um, but I have been meaning to see it for years. Okay, go for it. Right, so I guess that brings me back to myself. Um, the next film is a film which is, in many ways, the spiritual sequel to Ghost World, um, a film which many people love, and they're often say, oh, why was there never a sequel? Uh, why was there no follow-up? And it makes me wonder why people obviously didn't pick up on this, because this uh, film is essentially a spiritual sequel. It is Art School Confidential, mm. uh, which, again, re- reunites the team of uh, Zygoff and Klaus. And it's based on, really, a, a two-page comic that uh, Klaus published in 8-Ball magazine. And it follows this group of students at, at at an art school and it's sort of the main follows the main sort of character who he from a young age he's sort of convinced himself he's going he, that 
his life goal is to become a famous artist. His hero is Van Van Gogh, and he shows him at the start, and he's giving this presentation dressed as Van Gogh and saying that he's going to become a famous artist and he's going to get chicks and everything's <laughs> going to be great, and this is his big plan. Obviously, he arrives at um, art school and finds out that everyone's got these big aspirations <laughs> of making it as a, as an artist or a filmmaker, and it features uh, the guy whose name I can't remember now. He uh, Ethan Suplay oh, um, yes. stars as this as a film student, and he's again. This is really when he was sort of coming more into the sort of main sort of uh, sort of consciousness. But he's absolutely wonderful in this this film. And the first conversation you have is he's having this what seemed you would assume to be like an argument with a producer, and he's like. Oh fuck you, grandma! And then it's like, okay, <laughs> I got my money. I can get my fucking movie made. Uh, but in many ways, it captures that pretentiousness of the art sort of student world. These sort of uh, people who like spend a year building a chair out of cardboard <laughs> um, and making like everything that they do seem so much more important than it is. <laughs> um, but as the film goes on, we've obviously got our hero Jerome here. He's he's constantly set back, and he's told that he's not perhaps as good an artist as he thinks and he gets caught up with um, this sort of more controversial artist and drunk here played by uh, Jim Broadbent um, and he sort of like becomes darker the more sort of rejected he is and by the end he's sort of like in prison and then he's suddenly becomes a famous artist because you know he's he's a prisoner you know he's an outsider artist and it's an interesting setup in obviously the sort of art school world and in many ways as I said if you like Ghost World this is the spiritual sequel mm. and a film I wish I'd got sort of more sort of recommendations it is because again it is very much the same as what we had with Ghost World just obviously a different setting and different characters mm. um, and it also features Malkovich and uh, Angelica Houston nice nice um, as well as everyone's uh, favourite indie sort of favourite uh, Steve Buscemi I've heard of it, but I rem- and I remember when it came out, but I never thought to check it out. So I will do that. Yeah, and this is also one of the rare occasions where Buscemi doesn't die. Oh, yay for him! So, a good day to be Buscemi. <laughs> um, right. So we're on to selection number five. Uh, yep. Lucky, what you got for us? Now, a lot of people I know are uh, excited about star wars episode seven i am star uh, excited about star wars episode eight because it is directed by ryan johnson um and my number five pick is his uh feature debut from i think 2005 or 2006 brick Um, nice good choice which uh stars uh joseph gordon levitt as a kid who gets um kind of drawn into a murder mystery when his um ex-girlfriend if i recall correctly played by lost claire Emily Dura- yeah Emily claire. Yeah. Of lost um and it's it's a great take on uh the high school movie and it works its central gimmick very well the central gimmick is it is basically a 40s film noir style mm. film set at a high school but with the kind of dialogue that, that would that would feature in a film noir. So beyond the idea of you know, you know the idea of a high school being like a, a horrible cesspool of of rampant sex and corruption, uh, you've got this wonderfully stylized dialogue, which it takes a certain kind of acting to, uh, skill to pull it off. 
But I think the cast really does. Even uh, some of the weaker members of the cast, like Nora Zetner, um, I think really managed to, to work in the conceit and, and make it work very well. And um, it, it, it's a very it's a very interesting film, a, a very enjoyable film with uh, a, a kind of a novelty to it that. But it, it goes beyond it's it goes beyond the novel. The quality goes beyond the novelty. It's not interesting just because it is a modern noir um, set at a high school. It just really is that good. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, I, again, it's uh, I would it was a film I was actually going to put on my list. I'm glad that you brought it up, Lackey. Because um, it, it, I don't know, did people? Is it a film that people still talk about, or is it sort of like had its period and now it's sort of sunk under the radar? I think uh, it's one I, of those like film people's film. It, yeah, it, it's, it's I still a, think Ryan Johnson is underappreciated, like period. And one could argue I'm wrong because he directed an episode of Breaking Bad and stuff like that, and like the Star Wars it's... thing. But two, two? yeah, yeah. And I only two, remember two I remember one specific. No, three actually. Yeah, he he was he was doing other stuff, but I still don't think that he's a name that people bring up often enough. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would I would I would put Brick on a list that. Of under the radar, underappreciated, under talked about. It, it, he really is, I think, just such an exciting talent, and um, I'm really happy. He, 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 he proved that he could move beyond kind of like the art house and do an, a, a, you know, a smart but effects-driven action film with Looper, which I thought was an amazing film. Yep. I still haven't seen Looper. What? I know. I'm sorry. I'm very excited that for the because I'm excited for the Star Wars movies. Um, whereas my husband, who like refuses to talk about the prequels, is not. But what I keep saying to him, I'm like, realize like they're actually in like the way they've chosen the directors. How exciting that is that they pick someone like Ryan Johnson for Episode Eight. Like that in itself, to me, is is really comforting and promising. Uh huh. Yeah, I just wonder if like a few years from now we're going to be like sitting around and talking about the new trilogy and if we're going to still we're going to sort of refer to it in the same ways that we talk about the prequels oh god i hope not you, you only know, time will tell i can yeah. i can imagine myself you know i liked ryan johnson until he did episode eight and everything he's done <laughs> the way i you and i were talking the way uh elwood you and i were talking about hayden christensen last night <laughs> yeah i'm i'm going into the I'm going in with a very jaded outlook to the new films. Uh, as I said on the previous episode, I'm very much in the stage now where I'm bored of the force. So, I blame uh, blame the internet and fan culture for killing my interest. Yes, I've yes. saturated it. Yes. I blame society. <laughs> Christine, um, where do you want to go next? Hey, it's me again? Yeah. Yes. Alright. Well, um, this is a movie that Emily and I covered on the show, I think because I prompted another one where I scream from the mountaintops that people need to see it. It is directed by, um, you might need to help me, Francois Ozon. Francois Ozon? Yeah, he directed the the swimming pool, and that's the only other movie of his that I've seen. Um, The reason I watch this movie that I'm going to tell you the title of, I promise, is because because Michael Fassbender was in it, and it was streaming on Instant Watch. And I really like Michael Fassbender, and I really like Instant Watch. Um, The name of this movie is Angel. It's from 2007. It's kind of, if you're IMDb and around for it, it can get obnoxious to find because it's got such a generic name. There's a lot of movies named Angel. Yeah, and in th- shows apparently there's a show named Angel. Who knew? Uh, but, but um, 
Michael Fassbender is in this movie. Sam Neill is in this movie. It is a fantastic movie. It is about a young girl who wants to be a writer, but instead of writing, I guess, for quality, she writes to be popular. And it is on point and funny and satirical. It's a period piece. It takes place. And what is this saying? This says, what I'm looking at says early 20th century. I guess we'll go with that. Because they go into World War, one of the World Wars. They do. They do. I can't remember which one. I think it's, (laughs) it might be one. It's really sad and earnest and genuine, but also kind of shows the downfalls of a young girl who manipulates a system to serve her own needs. Like, she can't stay at the top for very long when she's not writing from a place of genuine passion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the tone of it might throw people off because it's it is a, a weird bit, tone. It's really quirky and it's m- melodramatic. And there's a point where they, they, they ride a camel on their honeymoon through Egypt, but you just see, like, the painted backgrounds moving. It's clear they're not on a camel. It's clear they're not in mm-hmm. Egypt. It's very but stylized. It's, it's supposed to be like that. So if you can yeah. get past all that stuff, it's it's definitely worth And the watching. lead actress, it's, it's Ramallah Garai. I there you no go. Yeah. Didn't try to say her name because I, I knew. I'm probably <laughs> butchering it. She was also in Atonement and... Um, a couple of other things. She was in the Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. She was the lead in that. <laughs> what she a recommendation. is so good in this movie because she plays this very, what's the word I'm looking for? Just as it, like the definition of like an imperfect, ditzy, uh, annoying woman. She mm-hmm. is so good at that part and just like has all of my respect for anything she'll do from hereafter for that movie. It's really interesting. And I, I don't yeah. think. I don't it's think... unlike anything. Yeah, and she's super dislikable, so I think that's hard for people to get mm-hmm. on board with. Um, Christina, I obviously have to ask, because you said Fastbender's in this one. Were yes. you a fan of Fastbender before or after Shame? Oh, way, way before. I, I, for some reason, it, all it took was uh, him making that movie to suddenly really get him to notice, but he did have a, a great body of work before then, so oh, I'm always interested oh to know... Where most yeah, he's been books. talking about him since that. Uh, uh, what's the Nazi horse movie? Oh, Blood Creek is terrible. Yeah, but like, um, you've been talking about him since then. So for me, for me, what really put him on my radar was Inglorious Bastards. Which I mean, I think that's true for a lot of people. But um, that made me look back at a lot of his stuff. He has a, a British television show he did called Hex, which I really like. And he was in Three Hundred, so I mean, people knew he was around, but. But seeing him in Inglorious Bastards made me go back through and then keep up with everything he's done. Up until very recently, I kind of fell off the wagon a little bit. Who was he in 300? Was he um, the hunchback guy? He was or? one of the 300. Yeah, he's a, he's a yelly guy with long hair and really nice <laughs> And six-pack. Yeah, I'm not sure. He, he's number 206. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's one of the guys, every time, um, like... There's a group shot. He's one of the guys that's right up front. So, I mean, if you're looking for him, he's, he's there. He's pretty prominent, yeah. I think he has long hair in it, too. Yeah. Right. Nick, where you want to go for your next selection? Uh, I want to go to a movie that came out recently, I uh, think like two years ago, and that's Cloud Atlas. Um, it came out, and I feel like it came out, and then hardly anybody went and saw it, and then they kind of just brushed it away. Uh, it's Tom Tyquer and the Wachowski siblings, and it's Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving, amongst others, playing several different characters in a story that takes place 
in the past and the future and the present. It, it It's all over the place. But there's something so magical about it. I remember just being so enthralled in the theaters, not understanding half of what's going on, just but being just so enamored with the story. And what does it mean? Does it even mean anything? And then upon subsequent rewatches of it, just like trying to put the pieces together. It's like a fun little puzzle of of just i don't know it's 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 a puzzle of something uh but it's i really enjoyed it and uh it's i don't know it's there's something about it that just draws to me and it's one of those you watch it every so often and i hate to say it but i think it's one of the last good things that the wachowskis did because i've seen a little bit of sensate and i'm not a fan of that so i kind of just went well, sorry. I just <laughs> instead of watching that, I kind of went back to Cloud Atlas and just enjoyed that. And it was nice to see Hugh Grant in a role instead of like him, you know, fumbling over ties with Sandra Bullock in two weeks' notice, or him fumbling over another girl in Love Actually, or just him fumbling in general. Like it was nice to see uh, just how uh, I guess of a chameleon he could be in some of those uh, roles that he played. Do you go with the director's? I haven't seen it yet, but I know that there is a director's cut that's very long, but that many people have spoken higher of. Do you have a preference or have you seen the extended? I've seen both. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if you want to just get an idea of what the movie is, just watching the regular theatrical one is Mm -hmm. fine. But if you want to just kind of solve that puzzle a little bit more, get a little bit more out of some characters, definitely go the extended route. Because I've been wanting, because I read another book by that author. I read the Bone Clock, Bone Clock, Bone Clocks, and I really liked it. And I'm like, oh, I do want to see Cloud Atlas. But then there was a whole no, watch the three and a half hour version. So now I'm all confused. <laughs> but okay, I think Good you may know. have hit it on the head there, Emily, with why this film didn't really take off. I mean, first of all, it's the Wachowskis, uh, which is always it is now a sort of warning sign. You see the, them attached to it, and second, it's them directing a three hour movie. Right. Which I think a lot of people don't, whenever they see like, a three-hour movie, unless it's someone like Scorsese or Spielberg, sort of a director of note, people are always going to be so kind of cautious whether mm-hmm. they're going to want to commit three hours of their time to yeah. sitting and going on this epic, especially because it goes on so many different directions and mm-hmm. eras and, and timelines. It's It can seem like a bit of a daunting watch, but somehow they make it work. I don't know if, uh, Christine and Lucky, did you watch Cloud Atlas or... I, I saw not. it in the theater. Okay. Yeah. Um, I. It's so funny that this this is coming up because I was just saying the other night while I was watching Sense8, I, <laughs> watching Cloud Atlas, I, I was like, this is good. It's so close. It's, it's good. It's so close. <laughs> it could be so much better. I wish the Wachowskis would do episodic television. <laughs> and then they did, and it's not good (laughs) i just wish i just wish that cloud atlas could have taken time to breathe and to develop and and every time i'm like really in it 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 turns into something else and i guess it's good because it left me wanting more but in the way that i guess maybe but and then it's a perfect opportunity to take something so character driven and so big and turn it into like episodic television and and then it wasn't what I wanted. Um, but this is good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, Emily, what's your next one? 
Oh, it's up. It's my turn. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay, I'm gonna go with a movie again. I don't know the year. Some year. Oh, 1973. I have it right in front of me. Um, so I wanted to put this director on the list because he's made a lot of really interesting films, and I never really hear him talked about. And that director is Curtis Harrington. Um, so he did uh, Whoever Slew Auntie Rue and a couple of other movies I can't remember the names of, but the one I'm going to talk about is The Killing Kind with John Savage and Anne Southern. And it is a, uh, I guess Curtis Harrington was really interested in the relationship of men to older women. Um, so The Killing Kind is John Savage uh, is a like young guy who's just getting out of prison because he was in prison for having like basically acts like kind of taken part in a gang rape, but not wanted to, but that's, that's a side note. And he has a very complicated relationship with his mother played by Ann Southern. And then with kind of a couple of other women. Uh, and it's just, it's a strange movie. It's a really good character study. Um, really all of Curtis Harrington's films, I think are really unsettling and strange and kind of dig into this odd side of humanity quite well. So anything in his catalog I would recommend, but I decided to go with Killing Kind. So that's that. Nice. Um, right. Uh, again, that brings me on to myself. Um, my next choice, I'm going to go with the 2002 film Igby Goes Down, huh. which is essentially going to be the closest where I feel that we're ever going to get to someone adapting Catcher in the Rye. Mm. The film itself, it's got one of these probably the most memorable opening ever where we have Igby here played by Kieran Culkin, uh, Macaulay McCulkin's brother. I don't know if he's older or younger. Fuller, go easy on the Pepsi. <laughs> okay. I laughed, but I was muted. I'm sorry. I just <laughs> um, it opens with uh, with Igby and his brother, Ollie, uh, here played by Ryan Philippi, killing their mother, uh, Mimi, played by Stephen Sarandon. Um, they It opens with them putting a plastic bag over her head and suffocating her. And then the film rewinds itself and sort of leads up to this event. And we obviously see it from the reason why they are killing their mother. But the film itself uh, follows Igby. He comes from a sort of old money family. Um, his father's a schizophrenic and is in an institution. And he's kind of fearing that he's going to suffer a mental breakdown. So he runs away from, from his school and decides to head off into uh, Chicago and basically just sort of live it, uh, live it up and, and hide out from his family who are obviously look, looking for him. And, and over the course of the film, he hooks up with his godfather, D.H., played here by Jeff Goldblum, uh, once again making his appearance. And he, hook, he again, he uh, hooks up with a vegetarian artist here played by Claire Danes called Suki. Um, but it's a really interesting little indie movie and it's again it's one of those films i wish had got more sort of uh attention on its release but it kind of appeared and then disappeared really within the space of a couple of months but it's uh, certainly one worth checking out and certainly one of my favorite indie movies uh out there so hmm. haven't seen it but know of it anyone else uh, seen it at all or i never I even heard of it i've heard of it i haven't seen it but uh you know, I was always doubtful about Kieran Culkin until I actually saw him in Scott Pilgrim, which yeah, I, I his performance in Scott Bill Pilgrim was practically Oscar worthy as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, so, if you if you want to see the straight version of him in Scott Pilgrim, then uh, Igby Goes Down will be it. Cool. <laughs> if that's a good enough selling point. For, for 
obviously uh, we're running close on time, so just going to pass it back over to Lackey for your final pick of the evening. My final pick of the evening, um, I have saved the best for last. This is my favorite horror movie of the last 20 years. Uh, 2000, made in 2002 or 2003, and um, it's called May. Directed the, for the uh, second uh, feature film, the first widely released by a, a young director who I don't think has gotten the attention he should have outside the horror genre, um, Lucky McKee. It's the story of a young woman living in, I believe, Los Angeles who is somewhat disturbed um, and obsessive. And she's played by Angela Bettis. And uh, she glom- kind of gloms on to, a, um, to a, a, a mechanic who lives in her area and, and develops a very big crush on him. He's played by Jeremy Sisto. Sisto. And um, in the middle there is um, the first role I ever saw her in, Anna Ferris. Oh, as, yeah. a, um, as a uh, uh, somewhat uh, flirtatious bisexual um, co-worker uh, who flirts with, who flirts very heavily with May. And um, it's really hard to, to really talk about May without going really too much into spoiler territory. But it's a really, really strong look at how outsiders try to fit in with society and basically taking the point of view from of both the outsider and kind of like the people who have to deal with some obsessive behavior. And it is just all three lead performances are fantastic. And um, I cannot praise this movie enough. It is, like I said, it's my favorite horror movie of the last 20 years. It's a good one. It's a very good one. It is. Christine, Nick, you got anything to add on May? I don't know if it's popped up on your radar at all. I really like it. Again, this is a movie I've never heard of, so I'm just writing all of this down. <laughs> we Angela did, Bettis yeah. is really good. Oh, she's fantastic in it. She should work way, 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 oh, way, God, way more yeah. than she does. Unless she's she doesn't really, want to. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> she's really versatile, too. She can do anything. And uh, Emily and I talk about this a lot. Um, the Masters of, of Horror thing that mm-hmm. happened a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. Sick girl. She's, she's fucking on point in that one. She's great. I love that. Oh boy, yeah. Some Masters of Horror are super flat and like really disappointing, and then others are like really surprising. And I think she is she the elevates. MVP of that one. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, May was obviously a film we've covered on a previous episode uh, with Vern. Uh, you can find that one in the archive section where we talk about both May and uh, the Soska sisters, American Mary. Nice. Um, so if you want to read a bit more, listen to what Ben had to say on that, check it out in the archive. Uh, Christine, your final pick of the evening, though. Hey, it's my final pick, and if you've ever heard me open my mouth ever, you might know what I'm going to say. 2009's Jennifer's Body. Knew it. Um, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Not that this is, like, under the radar or, like, no one knows about it, but I do think that maybe people haven't seen it Mm because they have preconceived notions about what it's going to be. Um, I know a lot of people are down on Diablo Cody or Megan, Megan Fox, Fox, but like this is the best movie ever. I know maybe a little biased there, but maybe not the best <laughs> movie ever, but like really, really great, um, really fun, very satirical, but also like a super good horror movie. Like it is creepy and off-putting and, but, but great. And Amanda Seyfried's in it and Adam Brody's in it and, I don't know. I'm just gushing. I have nothing articulate to say. But it doesn't deserve the, the reputation that yeah. it has. 
I think a whole lot of people hated it without seeing it. Yeah, I saw it in the theater. I went and saw it all by myself in an empty theater (laughs) at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, In the writing, I guess people have problems with Diablo Cody's writing. I've actually never seen Juno. So I don't have any issue with the way she writes, but Mm -hmm. she also wrote like a shitty, sarcastic character in high school and Megan Fox played her and it was like, yep, that's about right. Yeah. So, wow. I love Adam Adam Brody in it is what killed (gasps) this film for me. Oh, he's so funny in it. He's so funny in it. He's not funny. He's awful. He's the funniest ever. I, I will find you. I once watched this movie and then turned it off and then watched it again. <laughs> I wish I could step in this movie and punch Adam Brody in the face. <laughs> but you're supposed to be a douche. He's supposed to be a douche and he plays it so well. But just, he's just I, I doing haven't... the same character he always does. It's just exactly that's the point. <sighs> it, it, this is it's it's not a movie I've ever seen. And I feel bad for prejudging it, never having seen it. But I I can't stand Adam Brody. Uh, Ever since I was forced, ever since I was forced to watch most of the run of the OC, which I loathe. Adam Brody's really, I think he's very funny and versatile. I didn't understand that people had. I had no idea people hated him. I've never watched the OC. You know what? What was he in? He was in the fourth Scream movie, right? He's really funny in that, too. He's really funny in Grind, if you're into coming of age kind. Right? Oh my god, high five me for Grind. I used to watch it in college all the time. Same here, samesies. I don't know what that is, but I want to. Oh my god, we're going to do it on an episode. All right. It's about skateboarders. It's really not good, except it totally is good. Hopefully it features Adam Brody, like, wiping out and, like, tearing his face off or something, but (laughs) that happened. If Adam Brody is what's keeping you away from Jennifer's body, please. There are a couple of others. I can't stand the way Diablo Cody writes dialogue. But it's so suited to this movie. Yeah, it's it's shitty teenage girls. It may be suited to the movie, but I still can't stand it. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it's it's you know, to each his own. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Nick, where do you want to go for your final pick? My final pick is a movie I saw in college because uh, for some reason my roommates were massive Russell Crowe fans, and I mean anything he did, they were like, "This is the best thing ever." Biggest crush on him in the nineties, <laughs> um, and that's the two thousand seven film American Gangster. Hmm. I was um, hoping you were going to say virtuosity. I I don't know. I just I feel like this movie doesn't get talked enough about just in the gangster genre alone. Uh, Denzel Washington plays a heroin drug kingpin. I I guess heroin and drug are the same thing. Heroin kingpin uh, in 70s New York. And the cast is just astounding. Like John Hawks is in it. Riz is in it. uh, Ted Levine, you know, hearkening back to um, uh, Sansa Lambs when we discussed earlier. Josh Brolin's in it. I'm going to butcher his name. Uh, Chai Wittell Ejiofor. I would tell Ijafor is Ijafor. how I, I'm led to believe that's how it's pronounced. Well, he's in it. Cuba Gooding Jr.'s in it. Armana Santi's in it. It's just, it's a cast that's just, it's stacked. Is and this also Michael Mann? Uh, this is not. This is Ridley Scott. Okay. Um, but it's just, it's one of those movies where, actually, it was funny. The first time I saw this, we saw a cut where you could see all the booms hanging in mm-hmm. the shot, which was weird. Um, so we got our money back, but I went and saw it again and it was great the second time. And then it's also (laughs) one of those films where the director's cut is that much better than the theatrical version. 
um, as far as my liking Fitting goes. For Ridley Scott, since exactly, <laughs> the man that invented the director's cut with Blade Runner. Just about, um, but no, it's just one of those movies that I just it doesn't get talked about, and it bums me out because mm-hmm. it's just a good movie. And Denzel Washington, he's just the man in this movie. Like he's the man in anything he does, but he's just the man in this movie. Yeah. I have to ask Nick, have you seen Superfly? I have not seen Superfly. Okay. But that was the only based... problem I had with this film. I mean, I did enjoy it, even mm-hmm. though it's just Denzel Washington again playing the smartest guy in the room. But it, for myself, it was just like a big budget remake of Superfly in so many ways. Um, okay. And I understand it's based on a true story. So the fact that it sort of matches up with Superfly is just kind of coincidental. But uh, but yeah, good shout on uh, Making Gangster. I will have to check out Superfly as well. Mm. I'll give you a... Superfly is uh, one of the sort of key movies of the black exploitation movement. You want to watch okay. Superfly and Shaft and Sweetbacks. Uh, oh, I've seen Battle Shaft. So, and anything with Pam Greer in. Yeah, coffee. <laughs> and don't forget Blackula. <laughs> How could one forget? <laughs> or Black Frankenstein. Or Scream. Ganja and Hess. <laughs> now, if there's a way for the uh, black exploitation genre to exploit a, an established movie, they will do it. So, that's the name. Although um, it was an interesting coincidence that I happened to mention virtuosity, and then because Denzel and Russell Crowe were both in virtuosity, yeah. if I remember correctly. Look at that. Great minds. <laughs> you're there. You're there. Um, Emily, your final pick. Of okay, the- so um, for me, I, I, any, as anybody knows, I like my musicals, I like my 80s. Um, and everybody, like, you know, will enjoy those really dance-heavy 80s movies. Um, but everybody always goes to Break-In and Break-In 2 and all of that stuff. Why doesn't anybody ever go to Rappin'? Because we've never heard of it. I was just about to say. <laughs> it's a terrible crime of humanity. So Rappin' is exactly what it sounds like, 1985. It is Mario Von Peebles. I think he might have also directed it. Did he direct it? No, he didn't direct it. But he is the star and he is the rapper. And it is your typical Mario Von Peebles just gets out of prison and he goes back to his hometown, um, which I think is like Pittsburgh. or Like it's not New York. Like it's like a lesser metropolis. And the town is being, you know, his neighborhood, the rich white people are trying to buy out. So, you know, they have to, like, rally the troops and somehow fight the man. And, of course, the only way you can do that is through rap. Uh, Ice-T cameos in a very very young Ice-T appears. Um, A young, pre-coming-to-America Eric LaSalle raps in the movie. He plays one of the rappers. And this movie is so... Um, ridiculous and joyful. And Mario Von Peebles is not very good at rapping. So, like, he doesn't really have good rhythm, but he plays, like, the master rapper, and it's great. And, like, to watch this movie in a group, and I've shown this movie to so many people who had never heard of it, and I've shown it, like, at parties and, like, in groups where you have, like, 20 people watching it, and the by, like, the last moment of the movie is a song where everybody's singing along and i can tell you every time i've watched this movie with a group of people everybody at the end is singing along to can't stop won't stop rocking that rocking that mountain till we reach the top everybody sings it because it's that kind of movie so rapping r-a-p-p-i-n apostrophe do it please <laughs> cool if it means that much to you oh, i mean kadeem harrison <laughs> is also in it a young kadeem harrison there's a grandmother that raps like before it was cool to be a rapping granny. Like this is the original rapping granny. Do it, please do it. Stop everything and go do it. Final selection this evening. I'm going to go to South Korea, not literally, uh, but 
they were going to go with the 2003 uh, yes! movie. Oh, I know what you're going to do. I know what you're going to do. I nearly picked it myself, but go on. I'm sorry. I'm so <laughs> yeah. excited. I really hope that we pick the same movie, because if we haven't, this is going to be yeah. disappointing. Yeah, it's going to be horrible. Horrible. But go go on. Okay. <laughs> it's directed by Jiang Jun-Hwan, and that is the film Save the Green Planet. Oh, no. Damn it. I <laughs> See, I knew go, that was going to happen. No, I thought you were going to go with Old Boy. I, I thought the same thing. I got excited. No. Oh, I'm old, if, old Boy, I feel everyone knows what Old Boy is. So That's why I skipped over it. I figured, okay. you know, the Spike Lee version. But do go on about this okay. movie that is not Old Boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I will pretend I am listening to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I apologize to anyone who wanted uh, Old Boy to be my final selection. <laughs> so apologies to Lackey. But yeah, definitely, if you haven't seen Park Chan-wook's Vengeance trilogy, I would urge you to go and watch it. Uh, Simply for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy, and the fantastic uh, Lady Vengeance, one of my favorite of the three. Um, definitely go check it all out. It makes violence look beautiful, to put it the least. But the film, as I said, I've chosen is Save the Green Planet. It's, it is a sci-fi comedy uh, with elements of horror and thriller. Now, this film is, like Psycho, is a very much a bait-and-switch uh, bait style movie. In it, we have this character called uh, Byung-gu, who believes that aliens from the planet Andromeda are about to attack Earth, and that he's the only one who can prevent them. And he teams up with his childlike circus performer girlfriend to kidnap this pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical executive who he believes to be one of the top aliens, but obviously hiding out on Earth. And his plan is to obviously kidnap this guy and get him to confess to being an alien. Now, it starts off very funny, and it has a, a Korean version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow as the credits sort of frantically flash by. And it's around the halfway point that the film suddenly goes a lot darker. And you realize you're watching what I suppose could be considered a, a sort of torture porn. But it suddenly goes from being this light, sort of light-hearted comedy to a very dark thriller and kind of finds its way back to being a comedy at the end. But the fact that it's able to switch genres so flawlessly mm. and to the point where we don't feel we're being cheated, it's very much like Psycho, where we obviously come in the film believing it's one film and then we have the shower scene and suddenly it's become something else i enjoy and that in the movie it's a very hard trick to do and obviously mm -hmm. it's something that we've only really seen with master directors like hitchcock so the fact that we have this obscure little korean movie being able to do this technique and, and pull it off well um kind of makes it more of a shame that this film sort of came out it was released for the tartan asia extreme label and it again it sort of disappeared i've pretty much when the label went under it's one of the few films that didn't get picked up unlike the likes of battle royale and old boy which obviously been picked up by, by other distribution labels but save the green planet is my final recommendation for the evening save the green planet save the green planet all right um as as i said all the selections uh from this evening are going to be on the letterbox page and you can find the link for that in the the description section below excellent very quickly because i know we're running out of time on the episode tonight also rams is there any films that you guys had grudgingly dropped from your your killer six i had to grudgingly uh cut cheap thrills um on the grounds it's a little bit too recent and i also decided to skip over at the last minute pink floyd the wall oh i love that movie oh sorry yeah <laughs> Um, Christine, Emily, did you have anything that you had to cut out? Um, I actually didn't. I had a pretty tight six. Um, 
I'm trying to think if there was something that was kind of hanging on the edge. No, I actually was kind of having trouble um, <laughs> until Angel popped into my head, and I was like, ooh, I can put that on. I just, I always perceive the things that I'm going to put on a list of this nature as, like, obvious choices, and I didn't want to, didn't want to <laughs> be obvious. Yeah, I had a few, like, there's, I mean, there's so many that I could have done. Um, and just the ones that were harder to cut off. I thought about doing The Exorcist 3, but I talk about that movie so much that I decided not to. And I feel like that one is slowly has been getting more respect as the years go on. It's yeah. been getting a lot of respect for a long time. I remember people talking about how how it was grossly overlooked and very underrated back in oh, the yeah. late 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still, I, never, I mean, I I'm still waiting for, myself, for that but... special edition DVD with you know, commentary and everything else that we'll probably never get. But I just, I love that movie. I think it's a great example of an author directing his own work and doing it right. And then I, the other one I kind of, I was going to put last night, but I talk about that one a lot too. And that's um, uh, the Dama Keller's 1997 with, with Canadian Sandra Apocalypse. Oh and um, with Sandra Oh and David Cronenberg. And everybody from Canada. Yeah. And, I yeah, love that movie. Actually, yeah. Actually, I think the only big Canadian actor that wasn't in that was Stephen McCaddy. Now that I think of it, Callum Keith Rennie yeah, was in it too. It's incredibly Canadian. It um, is. Yeah. And then the other one I debated but didn't was um, the more recent horror movie, uh, Dead Girl with a uh, bunch of people whose yeah. names I can't remember Noah now. Noah Segan and... I yeah, Noah Segan, that's that. it. That's another one that's been on my list of things to see since forever. And it's, yeah, it, it's similar, I think, to Visiting Hours in that it's a movie that I think you could watch and perceive it as being like, ooh, it's a movie about dudes raping a dead chick, like it's so misogynist. But no, it's actually a movie about misogyny. And I think it's fantastic, and I keep meaning to revisit it, but it's not an easy one to watch, and I think it's very underrated. So Another one, and I'm going to try to hold myself back as much as possible here, another one that I briefly considered, not be, I cut it because it's not a huge favorite, but because I, it is an interesting film, it's a, a, a film with a similar premise, or not a similar, but a kind of similar premise called Make Out With Violence. Oh, yes, I've heard of which that. Which is I've basically, heard. from what I understand, it's Dead Girl as a quirky indie comedy. Okay, interesting. Uh, Nick, did you have anything? Uh, I had uh, Battle Royale and Attack the Block, but I cut those for Bronson. Ah, Attack the Block is great. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. Love that one. Good picks. Um, for myself, there was only two. The first one was The Dirties, which I cut mainly due to terms of taste, obviously with the recent events with the that we've had seen in the mm-hmm. news of another senseless shooting. I felt they would be kind of... Uh, it was kind of a raw nerve to sort of have it as a main sort of pick, but I saw it this week and I put it up there with Elephant in mm. the film that we have a film here about two bullied students who one of which is secretly plotting to, to do a high school shooting, but it's produced by Kevin Smith and it's a, a serious sort of little indie movie, but it's well worth hunting down. Uh, it's on iTunes, so you can get it through there. Mm or what? where people find movies. What's the name of it again? It's called The Dirties. The Dirties. It's uh, the first of Kevin Smith's sort of producing sort of credits. Interesting. He, I got burned with a better place with his presented by Kevin Smith label, but that does sound interesting. Mm. If you liked Elephant, uh, this is kind of like... The, I haven't seen Elephant, most... actually. Oh, Elephants. I would highly recommend watching Elephant's Elephant. Very good. That's, yeah. that's Van Zandt, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and the final... Uh, film I had was really just because I feel that Tony Kay is probably the most underrated director of all time. Uh, oh, I never. 
If if you say um, detachment, I will lose much respect. No. Okay. I like detachment, but that's not what oh. I choose. You. Christine and I saw Detachment together. We had a hard time not laughing. It was terrible. We just, I had to like look at her at one point. I'm like, this is this is funny, right? And you were like, yeah, it is. But we <laughs> can't laugh. I'm the only one Adrian that thinks Brody's this is here. bad. Yeah. Oh, that was a good time. <laughs> that was a good time. Yeah. Um, the film I was actually going to choose is the film which I ironically fell between American History X and Detachment. And that was the 2006 documentary he directed, Lake of Fire. Okay. It's 152 minutes, so you get a lot of movie for your money. Um, and it's about the highly controversial subject of abortion. Huh, okay. um, again, it's a sort of a Warner's subject, and I felt that if I included it on my list, it would bring down the tone of the rest of the list and have <laughs> this odd, serious movie. But for myself, it's the definitive documentary on the argument. Hmm. It looks at both sides, and it doesn't have... It's not one of these documentaries where the documentary maker feels the need to be involved. Um, here, okay. K just prevents the facts from both sides we have uh, obviously we have the pro-life and the pro-choice groups I, the fact is I didn't realize there is a Catholic group that promotes pro-choice until I saw this film and we have interjections from people like Noam Chansky Peter Singer Alan uh, Deshronwitz and it's it's a absolutely fascinating film it's both when I was watching it I was both physically disgusted um, and emotionally drained by watching it it mm-hmm. It's a movie that will certainly spark a lot of uh, different emotions in yourself. But I feel that if you're going to have a discussion on the subject, then uh, Lake of Fire is certainly a, a good centerpiece hmm. uh, for that argument. But uh, yeah, it came out and again was just randomly forgotten. And you would have thought that it, seeing as it made so many best films of 2007 lists, uh, that it would have sort of stayed up then even more with the subject. But uh, no, sadly it was... Uh, seemingly forgotten hmm. yeah i'm i'm intrigued and on that dower note <laughs> brings us to the end of, um but if we're gonna have a happy recommendation just so we don't end this uh, completely on a downer i would recommend another documentary dig which follows the brian jonestown massacre and the dandy warhols the dandy warhols obviously going on to fame and fortune and the brian jonestown massacre under the leadership of the, should we say, psychotic lead singer Anton Newcomb, basically his attempts to sa- sabotage his band at every opportunity. But really, is a it's a fantastic documentary that's both funny and shocking in in equal terms. But because I'm be- not hip to music bands, when you, I all I heard was documentary about the Jonestown massacre. I'm like, that's your idea of a light and happy note, dude. <laughs> dude, we gotta talk. <laughs> it. I think it's the fact that we have. The lead singer, and they do the showcase for, I think it's Mercury Records or one of the big labels. And one of the band members is like, he plays out of time. So rather than wait to the end of the set to like correct him, he just stops everything he's doing and like picks a fight in the middle of the stage. And it like shows him at the end that he's like basically on his own by this point. He's like released his 13th album by himself. (laughs) And he's there playing for like a grand total of six people. And this guy's like, ignoring him and he just goes and kicks him in the head and it's like you've got this guy who's clearly got musical talent but is also in the delusion that he's significantly more important that he's going to lead this musical revolution and the fact he tries to spark a like a blur oasis sort of rivalry with the branch on San Massacre by sending them gift wrapped shotgun shells (laughs) nice but yeah it's it's a it's a it's a fun little documentary and what's the name of it again it's called dig you've got me intrigued there anything to do with punk rock or anything like that 
Yeah, it's a uh, it's a stage dive into rock and roll excess, as the box cover note says. I would expect nothing less from the Brian Donestown Massacre. <laughs> you also right. did, they did the opening to um, Boardwalk Empire. That's right, they did. I forgot about that. So, uh, if you've not heard of any of the bands, uh, there's your entry point. <laughs> I'd like to thank uh, all my guests this evening for coming and joining us this evening. In uh, no particular order, I'd like to thank uh, Christine. Thank you. Um, <laughs> whose book, uh, Wake Up Maggie, is available now on Amazon as ebook, and I believe it's in physical form now as well. It is in physical form now. Um, so, everyone go over there and purchase copies for your friends, family, yeah. enemies. <laughs> It makes a great gift. It's, it's, I'm currently reading it at the moment and I'm in, enjoying it. And I'm not just oh. saying that because obviously on the show. Well, good thank stuff. you. It's, uh, it is a really great book. So, uh, And if you've got, you've got some other stuff coming out as well at the moment. Is that right? I do. By the end of the summer, also available on Amazon, I should have a short story collection up. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, I'm so proud of you. Thanks. <laughs> And obviously, oh, and I do the feminine critique with Emily. Yes, about to say, because I was just about to move on to your partner in crime, Emily, who's uh, obviously the other half of the feminine critique. As we said, when your wonder twin powers combine, you do form the feminine critique. That is, we do. That is correct. Uh, so thank you, Emily, for again coming on and uh, supporting another of my specials on this show. My pleasure. I do promise pleasure. we will get you some on some normal shows soon. I'll be offended if I'm not special, so please. But uh, Emily, if you know, is uh, also the person who is the reason we're going to be watching the Nutcracker in 3D this Christmas. Yes, we are. Probably not actually in 3D, but yeah. Um, Emily, have you got anything happening over the dollhouse? Uh, just the usual random reviews of stuff. So DeadlyDollsHouse.com. I don't even remember what the last movie I reviewed was, but they're, they come every Monday. So keep on checking. Cool. And Lucky of the Nutcracker. Uh, I'm kind of speechless at this point. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Thank you again for uh, obviously joining us. And you obviously used to doing stuff with Cinema Axis as well as Nightmare Gallery. And, yep. And uh, most recently, you also published your piece for Channel Superior at channelsuperior.com about one of my favorite uh, Saturday morning cartoon series, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, the, the review is actually at my site, but Bubba linked to it. Yeah. But, yes, I did watch the first six episodes of Dungeons and Dragons. Nice. Um, but yeah, definitely right. check out the Saturday morning blog fun uh, over there for Lackey's uh, piece. You can also read Bubba Wheat's thoughts on SWAT cats, uh, my thoughts on JC and the Wheeled Warriors, aka Bam Max for kids, and I believe we've also got a review of Plastic Man over there as well. So some good stuff. And uh, finally, but no means least uh, of the French Show Sunday, Nicholas Rehack. Thank you, sir. Uh, obviously, over FrenchShowSunday.com, the French Show Sunday podcast. Follow us on Twitter, FDS tweets, etc., etc. I have a comedy album out there. Just Google for it. Blah blah blah. Uh, I've always enjoy being on here, at Elwood. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> but yes, uh, you definitely check out uh, Nick's comedy album. Nick Rehack isn't funny. <laughs> I would disagree with the title, but you know, it's your album. Call it what you want. <laughs> well, actually, the album's called Self Portrait, uh, but the website NickReactIsn'tFunny.BandCamp.com. Oh, no, that's fine. But, uh, yeah, Nick, uh, also making us all feel crazy for... Uh, you You also made me uh, think way too much about Honey Mustard. That, so. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad, man. I'm glad. You can never think too much about Honey Mustard. Come on. <laughs> but, again, I'm pretty, thank sure, you. I'm pretty sure it's what the alchemists were getting at. <laughs> <laughs> and, again, just from one random note to the next on this show. But, 
as always, uh, my name, this has been Elwood Jones from the Dirty DVD Hell, signing off another edition of the Mad, Bad and Downright Strange Showcase, but I remind you as always to keep it strange.